Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Media. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Ah, welcome back to Behind the Wait, no, sorry. Uh, it could happen here, you know. Um, we'll keep that in so that our audience, uh, who, who I know is is deeply tied to the myth of my own perfection, knows that I, too, err. Um, speaking of, of perfect creatures uh, who have never made a mistake, our guest today is Dan Olson. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> hi, hi, Dan. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Not making mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the, you are the Buddha I met on the road, and I'm going to say, uh, hello, teach me how to how to be flawless. Um, Dan- All right. So first, have you heard of gold? <laughs> yes. Yes. I was about to talk about gold. The perfect investment, Dan. The perfect investment vehicle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Never fails. So, Dan, you are a, a YouTuber. Uh, an investigator, one of my favorite researchers. Uh, we had you on recently to talk, well, a couple of months ago. I don't couple know, time, ago. flat circle, et cetera. Uh, but we had you on to talk about your work reporting on uh, the NFT bubble uh, bursting and on the metaverse bubble bursting. Um, mm-hmm. And more recently, you just published a two and a half hour documentary investigation into the GameStop stock cult, which is a lot of people are aware of the first part of this, which is that in January of 2021, 
a bunch of folks started like buying you via some weird Reddit movement started buying huge amounts of GameStop stock, which in a period of of pretty exaggerated decline caused it to briefly surge in value to absurd levels. Um, And I think that's where most people kind of and then, you know, eventually it fell apart. And I think that's where most people kind of stopped paying attention. Yeah, they they remember that week where it was like yeah. in the news and then they just kind of assumed like that was it. Like, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's been a uh, it's an interesting and weird ride because the evolution into like cult like behavior was uh, it, it was a very strange journey. Uh, it happened surprisingly rapidly. Uh, but also not that surprisingly, like w- once you fully unpack it, you know, you you have this Internet movement that is very nebulous in its origins or not in its origins. Sorry, the, the origins are very straightforward. Like Wall yeah. Street Bets is a gambling sub that uh, had like it self-describes as if 4chan found a Bloomberg terminal. So <laughs> sure. You know, uh, it's it's crass. It's irony poisoned. Um, you can get just as much social clout for losing thousands of dollars as you can for for winning thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's an argument that there's more clout for loss porn than there is for like actually posting big gains. Um Obviously, like not not like the healthiest or uh, most wholesome community you could uh, you could imagine. But, you know, um, out of that, plus covid madness, plus stimulus checks and just general nihilism uh, arose this kind of Frankenstein short squeeze play on on GameStop. Um, that weirdly never actually happened because the play just sort of turned into its its own self-fulfilling thing. That enough people believed in the idea of this short squeeze play that they just kept piling in and piling in. And suddenly, like, the short squeeze doesn't actually matter at all because there's enough critical mass flooding in that you just get this massive pump anyway which convinces people that oh the squeeze is going on because in the moment you don't actually know like what mechanisms are driving the price movement you just see number going up uh and so more people kept piling in piling in piling in i got a phone call from you know from a friend of mine who's like hey have you heard about the gamestop stuff and i'm like yes i heard about it two days ago so if you heard about it today it's it's way too late do (laughs) not it's it's over (laughs) It's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sure enough, like I went back and reviewed our text messages and like and if he had bought, he would have been a just massive bag holder like it it plummeted, you know, hours later. And like for people who are not finance people, which I certainly am not, uh, this is like if you watched the big short, uh, that's kind of the tack. I mean, number one, that movie is seen as a blueprint by a lot of these guys, obviously. There's folks, uh, knowledgeable financial folks who have critiques of that movie, but it is it is accepted as like almost kind of like a sacred text within the GameStop stock community. And and it's weird because like they're the GameStop enemy. The 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 ape. Okay, well, I'll just use their lexicon. We'll go over it real quick. They call themselves apes for reasons that are not worth explaining. Uh, Their enemy are short sellers 
but short sellers are like Dr. Burry short sold the housing market. And Burry is uh that's Christian Bale's character, right? Christian Bale's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like all of the main characters in that movie short sold the housing market like yeah. that. That was their play. That was the big short was there like, look, there's this bubble. I, We're going to short sell it. Then when the price goes down, we close our positions out and keep a tremendous amount of money. And I should we should go just because when I watched this with a friend, they did not know what short selling was. Uh, it's not. I think a normal it's not a thing normal people will ever be in a position to do the basic idea. And this is all occurring with like stocks and commodities. But the basic idea is you make an agreement with somebody to get basically a loan of a bunch of shares in something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and with the understanding that you will give those back at a point in the future. And then yeah. you take those and you immediately sell them for their their present value, right? Yeah. And your g- hope, your it, like play like goal is that the value of that drops and then you are able to buy back an equivalent amount to repay the loan and have made a profit based on the gap between those two numbers, right? Like yes. that's the idea. Yes. That's yeah. that's the that's the idea. You you can as an individual like do this. Uh sure. you can you can take out a short position with your broker. You can you can do it through derivatives like puts. Um I I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it's, it's not like kind of normal like, people stock stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. not normal people stock stuff. Like you're there's nothing legally barring you from doing it, but it it really is kind of this like advanced play. You got to know what's going on, especially because like a thing that a lot of people in the description sort of skip over is that while you're borrowing it, you know, you're borrowing a thing and thus there's the expectation that you'll pay some kind of like, you know, borrower's fee. Um akin to akin to interest mm-hmm. on like the value of the thing that you've borrowed uh but like it's it's not interest on you know like a housing loan where the mm-hmm. interest and like where your payments all are geared towards paying off the loan it's just kind of like all right you owe me 5 bucks every single month forever as long as you're holding this and so you know, if you're not paying attention, like you need to be very actively managing these mm-hmm. kinds of positions. Otherwise, like your borrowing fees will just eat up all of your profit. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where like today, most of those kind of uh, kinds of trades aren't even really made by people directly. They're made by massive banks of computers and algorithms and shit. Kind of. Um, yeah. 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 Anyway, I think that's that's enough background back to the kind of cult aspect of it, which is, I think, much more relevant for for what we're talking about here. One of the points you made early on um, that I found really interesting is is that a significant amount of the initial GameStop uh, GameStop. I'm going to keep doing that hype was driven by influencers. Right. Yeah. And that there's evidence based on kind of the U.S. government's analysis of this that got published that like regulators are are paying additional attention, increasing attention to the influences that that uh, or to the impact that influencers can have here. Because there's this concern that especially working in groups, there's like an ability for people like this to disrupt the economy to a significant extent, to a way that would affect like normal people. Yeah. So one of the weird kind of so pump and dumps have existed forever. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing was, is that so the the meme stock run up, it wasn't just GameStop. It was about like 15, 20 
like in, in January 2021, like so late 2020, early 2021, it was about 15, 20 different companies, you know, Nokia, BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, like, you know, uh, just kind of a bunch of over-the-hill companies that were all sort of part of this uh, th- this wave. And the issue was that in the GameStop price run-up, so the price went from at the end of 2020 as everybody like as sort of the meme wave like begins and and particularly once Ryan Cohen billionaire chewy uh founder chewy the cat treat or dog online treat, dog food company. sales yeah yeah when he buys in like that kind of like puts the stamp of approval on the whole thing so it goes from like four and a half dollars up to 19 something. And then at the end of January, it goes from 19, dollars up to 480. And so in that spread, the, the short sale. So there was short interest in GameStop. There was in fact, a reckless amount of short interest in GameStop, but the price increase was so huge. The volume of participation was so big. So many people were jumping on this that the the short interest closing their position, the actual like short squeeze portion of all of this is only like 10% of the price movement. All the rest of it is just people FOMOing in on like this thing that they heard about through their cousin. Yeah. I think another thing that's kind of interesting to me is like as this thing has evolved, you know, you mentioned that the actual price got up to like close to around $500. By the time this thing kind of transitions into being this millenarian kind of apocalypse cult, right? Like not, uh, you know, nukes and stuff end of days apocalypse generally, but like a the entire economy is going to come the belief that kind of has evolved broadly and that obviously there's different kind of factions is but is that like there is going to come a point where like the uh, the price of GameStop stock will increase to such an insane, some people say hundreds of millions, billions of dollars per share, that it effectively allows all of these apes who have bought shares to hold the entire world economy hostage until they have their increasingly arcane demands met, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That is the belief. And that is the belief. So so out of that, like, so, okay, so the shorts closing was only like about 10% of, mm-hmm. the, uh, of the total movement. So th- that leads to the conclusion that, you know, that the events of January 2021 weren't a short squeeze, which is, is actually kind of true. Like it wasn't it wasn't purely a short squeeze. It was actually very little of it was a short squeeze. Um, but because it wasn't a short squeeze like that term then allows the creative individual to fill in the gap and just say that it's like, just say that it's like, oh, the short squeeze never happened. Therefore, it's still on the table. The short, like it, it, the, the, the end, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it can still potentially happen. And in fact, if we just like look at the trend line, like I bet since it hasn't happened, 
since it didn't happen and the position that they held in December was so reckless, it's only gotten worse since, which means that they're getting, which means that these short sellers must be getting desperate, which means they're going to be willing to engage in whatever level of depraved criminal activity is necessary to protect themselves. Therefore, it's just getting more and more and more and more extreme. Therefore, when this finally goes off, it's not just going to be like, it's not just going to be a $500 price point. It's going to be a nuclear explosion that's going to topple the entire economy. Yeah. And that's, that's this like train of logic and what they, and it, it all comes from that just like missing the fact that it's like, oh, it wasn't a short squeeze because it was mostly FOMO. The short squeeze was buried under a mountain of, of FOMO. Yeah. But so it wasn't a short squeeze. It's like, yeah, it's all just like based in these like word games of like, ah, you said it was, you know, that the, the dumb and dumber, you know, yeah. it's like, what are the odds? A one in a million. So you're saying there's, there's a, chance. a chance. It's like, well, yeah. that's not what I'm saying. It's, I'm saying it's, it's, it's interesting because of the impossibility of the things they're actually hoping for, but also their fundamental belief that like it's inevitable in part because, you know, this is, this is, th- not wildly different from the psychology of like needing to believe in uh, uh, that you are going to paradise in the afterlife. Yeah, hallmarks right? of millenarianism. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of that, what you get is a lot of people who think that they are thinking scientifically, but what they're doing is taking an endpoint. And the endpoint is yeah. that, you know, this specific, you know, the, these hedge funds or whatever um, are are evil and, you know, illegally bribing or whatever the government to to stop us from succeeding or there's this other conspiracy. You're starting with this end point and then working backwards and like finding ways to explain yeah. the things that have happened within that framework. Yeah, um, here's like the, the things that would need yeah. to be true in order for the, yeah. the thing to happen. Yeah. Like, like the thing that like Citadel must have ordered Robinhood to stop letting people buy and share GameStop uh, stocks rather than like, you know what what actually happened which is that robin hood simply like could not exist if they allowed this to continue yeah um and you know legally i i don't believe there's anything that was stopping them from doing that um it's medieval peasant brain kind of stuff is what i initially like that's how when i was watching your documentary i was like oh it's this you know this need to find this kind of like magical answer to the problem and then i like interrogated that conclusion and was like well no it's not this is just the way people's brains work right this, yeah we're like we're, we're pattern making this isn't medieval peasant shit they're no dumber than we are like yeah <laughs> that's what I, this shows <laughs> yeah and one of the things that i love just kind of on that is that like you if you had a time machine and you went back a hundred thousand years and and found a bunch of you know homo literal like, literal cavemen <laughs> yeah actual apes more or less <laughs> you know but like hundred thousand hundred thousand mm-hmm. years ago that's that's modern humans like ge- yeah, you know, yeah genetically yeah, yeah. that's genetically modern humans you mm-hmm. you could just like implant yourself in their tribe and teach them calculus and you know yeah, soon they would it. be like, shorting would, GameStop stuff yeah. <laughs> yeah, that it's like like we're like th- things don't change it's like it's like yeah no we've been we've been doing this ever since we were you know this pattern seeking doesn't change. It's almost like it is basically endemic to the human psyche. Um, there's a really good question that that I've gotten in response to this is just like, is this just secular religion? Like, is this just – are we just like wired to to need faith in some shape or form? And if that is not provided by some institution, we will just invent it. And it's like, I, I don't have the answer to that, but signs point to yes. 
Yeah. Now, um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the other things that you brought up that I thought was interesting is the way you've got this this cast of and these are, you know, the influencers. These are the people who make a lot of these like arcane videos or, or put out these publish these prospectuses with that are dozens or hundreds of pages laying out you know, the arcana of how these different sort of uh, uh, anticipated apocalyptic uh, financial moves are going to go out, right? Yeah. A lot of these people, the belief is that I that I think is accurate, at least this is what I got from your documentary. Maybe I was interpreting you wrong, is that most of these or many of these people are not believers. They're, they're manipulating a group of people because there's money in it. Um, and one of the tactics that you see used a lot is kind of faux humility, right? I'm yeah. a du- I'm just a dumb ape. You shouldn't trust me. I'm not qualified to give financial advice, but here's the secret history of the universe. Invest your money here now. So, like, I mean, you've seen this a lot with, yeah. with various like cult leaders and pseudo cult leaders and just general like grift fluencers. You know, there's always this question of like how much of their own – how much of their own hype do they believe? How much did they believe when they started? How much did they eventually just like convince themselves of as people, you know, followed them? And I think it's 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 very much like kind of a uh, an individual case by case basis. Some of them are absolutely true believers, like from the get go. Uh, some of them, like a lot of them, are like soft believers. You know, I you know where it's like they're not hardcore into it you know if you really pressed them like it's not motivating their their daily decisions but what they're taking from it is like social reinforcement that they found a group of people who respond to them who like their posts who leave messages it's like oh man this blew my mind i can't believe the system is like this fragile you know sh- my tits are jacked lighting the fuse on the rocket ship buying more moon tickets you yeah know, and they and they respond to that very socially and um and and out of that sort of soup of like reinforcing uh messages it's really easy for people in those influencer positions to just kind of like hold uh conflicting like hold the conflicting beliefs of like i know that this is impossible but also it is like fulfilling me socially to say mm-hmm. these things i'll just i'll just juggle that inconsistency yeah and the way the mechanics of social media and particularly in this case it's the mechanics largely of reddit that's not the only place this occurs but reddit is certainly like the homeland you could say <laughs> um the the way in which upvotes and downvotes work and the way in which upvotes and downvotes take you know critical content people who are trying to in induce some accuracy or you might even say sanity in the discussion and that that gets pushed down and yeah. and hidden after a certain point of time with enough downvotes as opposed to like the stuff that is fundamentally unhinged but is like utopian gets upvoted it's it's the the physical like the actual mechanics of how the site is structured to work enforce fund at a fundamental level enforce groupthink consensus. Absolutely. Oh, and I mean, and the best part about it, and we see this across like all across Reddit communities, <laughs> which is this like it is it it's the social enforcement of truth that that people will take this social mechanism of upvotes and downvotes and and use it as proof against the claim. That it's like, oh, well, if if your negative sentiment were true, it would have been upvoted. 
Yeah. Because like the, there's this underlying, there's this kind of just like implicit belief that people will recognize truth and will upvote truth and thus upvotes and downvotes are, are an accurate filter on reality, um, which is demonstrably not true. Yeah. So, yeah, that's intensely at play here because you'll see apes who will then like reference the fact that like that, you know, that it's like if this insane theory were false, why did it get so many upvotes? And it's like, well, because it 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 hyped you up. It made you excited. People are not rational you gotta, actors. People are yeah. not rational. You got a tingly yeah. feeling in your yeah. tummy when you read it and yeah. the person told you that you were going to mm-hmm. be a millionaire. Yeah. So, that's why it, it's yeah. it's like asking why do we like magicians? Like, <laughs> of course we like magicians. It's it looks nice. It's fun. It makes us feel a sense of wonder. Yeah, I want to discuss one of the terms that you use a lot that I I missed the first couple of times because I'm not I'm not this is not a community I had studied. I thought you misspoke at first when you described like someone reach achieving a financial windfall as wife changing money. I just thought you. Like I do that all the time oh, no, on that's, the show. It's deliberate. That's a, that, that's that was a term. A, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. No. After and, the third and a lot time of people, you used it, I was like, "Oh, okay. This is a thing they say." Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are like, "I thought you misspoke." I'm like, "No, that's because I was tricking you. Like, I was mm-hmm. I was deliberately was like sliding good. in this yeah. term, like because like because they use it mm-hmm. like obviously as a as an entendre. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, like I'll just use it straight yeah. faced with no explanation, you know, three four yeah. times. And then finally explain it at the end and and make a lot of people angry yeah. uh, when when they realize that like no I what they weren't just mishearing me um, mm-hmm. yeah so that's one of those things like that goes to sort of the four chan roots of of all of this which is you know the the sort of like crass irreverence slash misogyny of uh, of chan speak and just this. You know, Wall Street bets will use this kind of like celebration of of making so much money that you can afford to be misogynistic uh, and and just like swap your wife. And and it turns out that, like, as yeah. we know, you, you make a joke like that often enough, you're eventually going to attract the people who are just straight up like, yeah, I hate my wife. Yeah. I want to be able to replace her. Um, yeah. Using my using my crypto or my uh yeah whatever my my game stock stop God gains I I was wondering if you might lay out one of the things the parts that was most interesting to me was the whole Teddy Day Teddy Day um, oh boy Teddy deal. Day is yeah fun. Can, you, can you explain Teddy Day to our listeners <laughs> Okay so Ryan Cohen who fancies himself an activist investor he buys into GameStop and gets a uh, minority a pretty substantial holdings that count as like a minority thing you need to file a bunch of paperwork with the SEC that say like you know it's like i hold greater than 10% of this company uh and he used that position to basically get power inside the company itself as chairman um as of a couple weeks ago he's now ceo so so Ryan Cohen gets heavily involved with with GameStop and he's like, I'm going to turn this around because his real ang- what seems to be his anxiety in life at the moment is this like sense of legacy. He doesn't just want to be like, he's like, oh, I got lucky with an online pet food sales thing. I'm a I'm a real I'm a big boy finance guy. You know, I save dying companies, real rich guy hobby. Mm-hmm. He puts out a series of children's books called Teddy, named after his late father, 
mm-hmm. and these are it's it's five books that have a target audience of two year olds that because you know when when you're rich and you want to do something like that you want a vanity published books you don't just like go to an off the shelf vanity publisher you make your own vanity publisher because in the scheme of things like that's just not that expensive yeah, so amazon he, has made it easier than ever <laughs> easier than ever so he founds this llc you know air quote founds pays the like 600 bucks in filing fees to create this llc teddy publishing um files a whole bunch of trademarks you know we're, we're talking like a few thousand dollars all in all in order to file like in order to just file a bunch of paperwork and this is all just like the scattershot stuff of like okay we're making a product aimed at children let's file the trademark for teddy very broadly uh and so it's going to cover like basically children's merchandise across the board you know mm-hmm. what if we want to put what if we want to put the characters on blankets or bottles or cups or plates or party supplies or whatever? So the these trademarks are just incredibly wide-ranging across just merch. Yeah. But the existence of these trademark applications and this LLC becomes the seed for Teddy, the company, as this like the mechanism through which Ryan Cohen is going to collaborate with apes in order to trigger Moas. Cause th- I guess this is the important thing about the mythology. Apes believe Ryan Cohen is on their side, that he is, he is their inside man. He is working with them. He is as frustrated as they are that this hasn't happened yet, but for like, arcane legal reasons he needs to like he he needs to operate like a like a clockmaker you know he has to do everything very delicately and indirectly and like his hand cannot be seen pushing on the scales so they think that it's like that this becomes a thing that they in in view all of their uh all of their hopes and dreams into is Teddy LLC that it's like this is the thing that he's going to use as the mechanism to do this. He's going to like buy GameStop via Teddy. He's gonna buy maybe some other company via Teddy. Teddy's going to get bought in to like is he gonna get bought by GameStop? Like one way or another. There were like hundreds of competing theories all rooted in in this but then back in january of this year a insanity starts in two so in both gamestop forums and bed bath and beyond forums the two meme stocks that are linked by ryan cohen they they create this idea called teddy day which is a combination of a bunch of things. So Ryan Cohen tweeted several Titanic references. James Cameron's Titanic was being re-released this past February on a day that aligned with National Teddy Bear Day. And so two different communities of apes for completely separate reasons latched onto this idea of Teddy Day. Uh it was it was uh Friday, February 10th. 
2023. They latched onto it as uh, just this that like this is the day. This is when it's all going to come together. This is when he's going to make his big move and a major driving piece of evidence that they had for Teddy Day was that in one of the Teddy books, the kids learn to read a clock and the hands on the clock are pointed to 10 and two. So Ryan Cohen left them clues in this children's book published six months earlier, warning them that that February 10th was going to be the day that it all went down. It that that was the day of the apocalypse. That was Teddy Day. And it got just like the the, the spread of this got just like absolutely unhinged on the forums. Like it was all that Super Stonk and BBBY were talking about for like a week and a half leading up to it. The hype was like unreal. And then of course nothing happened. You you I don't yeah. know if you noticed this, but but the US economy did not collapse last February. Oh, that's um, good. I had been I have been living like a post-apocalyptic warlord under the assumption that it had, but I'll yeah. I'll, I'll pivot now. Yeah. So so it's just it's one of those like it, it's just such a great encapsulation of the fact that like that these communities they will they will invent these these catalyst moments convince themselves that like oh here's a date that's upcoming and then the moment that like the great disappointment happens some of them like bleed off but for the most part like it nothing can actually like stop the inertia they can just discard it and and they did they you know no one talks about teddy day anymore except for the fact that like it 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 had a brief teddy day 2.0 as October 2nd was like upcoming because, you know, ah, maybe it wasn't the 10th of February. It was the 2nd of October, you know, and and sure, like I'm I'm willing to bet that when next February rolls around, like we'll we'll get Teddy Day 3.0. Yeah, uh, I'm sure yeah. It, it just keeps this. The same thing has happened with like different kind of Christian apocalypse cults, right? Yeah. Where you'll have a guy pick a day, then the day comes and then there's always a reason. and Fundamentally, because this becomes so much of someone's social life, because it becomes part of their emotional support network, because it's like fundamentally you it changes the way you talk, like you learn yeah. so many new words that make it into your diction that like it's easier to just keep rolling the the expected date ahead rather than and like acknowledge that kind of fundamental hit to your self-conception that admitting you got played would take. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the guy who does uh, so religion for breakfast. Um, yeah. Uh, he he picked up on the fact that like I was using phrases like a great disappointment in uh, in the video, like very deliberately because it's like it's the same. It's the same yeah. mechanism. So the great disappointment was like, that's the event yes. that yes. caused the seventh day Adventists to yeah. come into existence mm-hmm. uh, because <laughs> it was like yeah. a, a expected date of the apocalypse of the second coming, like yeah. didn't happen. 
And you end up with like this then fragmentation of the aftermath. A bunch of people just bleed off, but you end up with like a couple different factions, ones who are like, ah, well, the date was like, the date wasn't wrong per se, or like the idea wasn't wrong, just like the date was wrong. Like maybe it's off by a hundred years or whatever. And you get other people who are like, actually it did happen. It just happened in secret. Like obviously it wasn't going to just like happen in Times Square. It, it happened like, you know, the the millennium is already kind of like rolling underneath normal like normal looking society it's going on right now it's just day-to-day life hasn't changed and that's how you know it's happening is that nothing's changing and it's like okay okay C- cool so completely unfalsifiable rad awesome love that for you yeah so one of the things that kind of related to that i have been thinking about a lot lately is um We've got this story that keeps you know popping into the news every couple of uh, usually a couple of times a year that uh, what are called nons um, are are increasing as a percentage of the population every single year, which is like people who are not affiliated to any religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I've seen especially a few years ago you know atheists that I knew who were kind of like more active as as in like atheism as a movement really celebrating this i think that does like the the assumption that that means that like atheism is growing more popular has been kind of fundamentally inaccurate i I think what we're seeing and what this this is kind of evidence of is that like non-affiliation with an organized religion is more common than ever people are rejecting organized settled religion uh, at a kind of unprecedented rate that's certainly undeniable but that, that doesn't is mean not they're not the same as yeah. atheism. <laughs> they are still believers. And this is an example, right, right. This is people are creating the internet has given created a tremendous capacity to build religions. Uh, and that's what people are doing. Um, that's what this is. Yeah. And it's, it's like how long lasting will it be? I I mean, I I don't. <laughs> in in the scope of uh in the scope of world faiths i don't think uh uh gamestopism is uh is poised to stand the test of time um i i don't think we'll be seeing a uh, uh an ape emperor any uh anytime soon but uh but yeah like and and the thing is is that like you go back through history and like you you look at like religious archaeology and like you you start sort of breaking away from sort of this idea of Christian hegemony as being effectively like that. It's like, okay, you know, once the Christianization of Rome happened, like it was, it was then locked in on like until, you know, Martin Luther. And then you get like fragmentation into sects, but like it stays like locked in. And it's like, it's like, no, when you start really digging into the history, it's like, this is just, this is always going on. This is always boiling under the surface you look at like Puritanism in America through a non, like through just kind of like a human lens of like what you know about how people behave. And you suddenly start seeing that it's like, Oh, they were just like in a constant perpetual state of internal fragmentation as people had different ideas about like what was supposed to happen, what should happen and just kind of like formed you know, cliques and factions. And sometimes those factions got big enough to split off. Uh, and then they lasted, you know, 
10, 20, 30, 50 years and then like either folded back into the main thing or or whatever. But this kind of like churn in in faith and belief is is just it's always there. It just in in an organized codified faith, it's a lot easier to lose track of it. Uh, particularly from a historical perspective, it's a lot easier to just look at like the bigger picture and be like, ah, it was all the same. It was homogenous. Uh, and it turns out, no. Yeah. Sorry, that was a very, <laughs> no, no, like, no, 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 no. There was, no. I, I threw a lot of like very big assumptions into a very tightly yeah. packed uh, uh, statement there. Um, no, no, no. I, I think that was great. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of I think what I, I, I what I had to sort of ask about, um, you know, just sort of this fascination with the way in which almost anything can become a cult uh, these days, thanks to sort of the social dynamics of the different online communities and how they they reinforce each other. Like this is kind of at the center of almost everything that's a problem right now, one way or the other, right? Yeah, I think the the thing that is new and modern really is the ability, or is, is the, I don't want to say ability, the phenomenon of decentralized self-organizing belief systems. Mm -hmm. You know, that like there's these, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the meme stock influencers, you know, they're not leading it they're just like nudging it. They're not in charge of it. And if they, if any of them like tried to like really like seize the reins, um, that, that would get them like exiled, you know, any, mm -hmm. any kind of like overt power grab would be, would be antithetical to it. But so it's the, it's, and it's the same thing like in QAnon, if somebody, anyone who's come out and been like, I am Q, listen to me gets immediately just like yeah. just demolished by the faithful because like it's it's antithetical to their whole thing to have a really identifiable leader and and the fact that there is no identifiable leader that that the leader is mythological is is useful and beneficial to the uh to the organization and those kinds of like those kinds of movements, they're not unique to the modern age, but the modern age has made them very easy to form almost by accident. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, this will be <laughs> something for people to continue to keep an eye on because uh, it's not going to stop. Probably it's not going to stop. Lifetimes. Oh, boy. Like there's um, going to I'm, yeah. I'm there's going to be some like amazing doctoral dissertations yeah. on this subject in like 10 years. Yes, I, I would. I would certainly agree with that. Um, well, uh, Dan, you want to let the people know where they can find you? Uh, they can find me on YouTube. The channel name is, is folding ideas. Uh, mm. and I'm on socials, uh, uh, Twitter, blue sky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as, uh, as foldable human. Excellent. All right. Uh, check out Dan's, uh, videos, check out his YouTube channel, like, and subscribe. And uh, check us out, but you already have because you're here. So continue to check us out.
What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's chaos in Congress. This is this is it could happen here. The podcast about things falling apart and just this is a just a falling apart episode. Although it's a kind of funny one. Yeah, I'm your host Mia Wong, and with me is Garrison Davis. Hello, chaos every everywhere, but especially in Congress. So I just realized you grew up in Canada. I did, which means I did. Yes. Can can you explain? What the speaker of that? Do you know what the speaker of the house is for America? Yeah, uh, it's the guy who like presides over the things and has the hammer and he yells. Um, I, you know, that's 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 pretty close. 
Okay. See, see, come on. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. This is okay. So we're, we're going to go into a bit more depth about what this person does because I don't know. The American Constitution was written by absolute clowns and there's some wild stuff there. But however, comma, you know, so, so somewhat more seriously, this is a very, this is a very sort of consequential and dangerous moment in American political history. And in this moment, Congress is in complete chaos. Um, it is, it is, it is the most non-functional it has been in my entire life. And that is, that is saying something like Congress has been non-functional for my entire life. This is the worst it has ever been. And the reason it's the worst it's ever been is that Kevin McCarthy, who is the now former Speaker of the House, was removed by a vote of no confidence on October 3rd, which when this comes out, that will be exactly two weeks out. And the, he, he is removed because he tried to cut a deal with the Democrats to avert a government shutdown until the 17th. And he got the deal through. It would have but, been crazy if we had a shutdown until the 17th. God, imagine. Imagine. Ima- Jesus, fuck. Here's the thing. Okay, there's no shutdown until the 17th. There's also a chance, a, like a real serious chance, that like the shutdown starts and we still don't have a Speaker of the House. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not that high, but it could happen, which is nuts. This has never happened before. Yeah, and so 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 I guess we should we should go into specifically what hasn't happened before. And the thing that hasn't happened before is that no sitting speaker of the house during their term has ever been removed by a vote of no confidence, which is nuts. Because again, and I cannot emphasize this enough, for most of the 2000s, the speaker of the house was a guy named Dennis Hastitt who was literally a pedophile. And he was not removed by a vote of no confidence. So like this is this is the level of of you know weirdness that we're in like it, like literally the the, the 200 something year history of the u.s this has never happened um well, and from my understanding you don't actually have to be an like an elected member of the house no. to be the speaker which means they could carry on this tradition and they could get polanski as speaker of the house if they can find enough votes to carry it over <sighs> You know, at this point, this is something we're going to get you later. There was a there was a, a two day span, uh, two and a half day span where Trump was trying to get himself elected as Speaker of the yes, House. Yes, yes. Um, and then that which that would be probably apart. the most funny, the most funny. Oh, yeah, definitely. Result. Yeah. But, you know, so so because then is, he also has a path to the presidency. Yeah, yeah. They just have to get two impeachment votes somehow. <laughs> if Biden and Harris are taken out, this is how Trump can still win. This is yeah, this is yeah. the path, guys. This- Unfortunately, he's well. I mean, here's the thing. Okay, legitimately, if Biden and Harris die in a plane crash tomorrow, I actually think Trump could win the would, would win the Speaker of the House vote. Oh yeah, absolutely. But. B- no, guys, f- this is th- this is this is how Bernie <laughs> can still win. This is the path. <laughs> so, all right. So, so you know, we're we're in this. We're in. We're in. I don't know. We're just. You know, th- this is all like nuts. But like again, we are just. We are in the wilderness. Like we're in complete chaos land. No, no one. The U.S. has never been here before. And okay, the other thing we need to mention is okay. So you, you know, you you were saying that there has there hasn't like you know we 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 need we need to bring back the like pedophiles to be the speaker of the house. So speaker of the house, not a pedophile. The guy who removed him as speaker of the house, 
Uh, he, Look, he's removed by Matt Gates. Probably, probably. Yeah. So here's here's what I can say legally about Matt Gates, the guy who led eight Republicans to uh, join the Democrats in the in the vote of no confidence. Um, he is a man best known for being investigated for the Department of Justice for trafficking underage girls. What I can legally say is that he was suspected by the Justice Department of being a pedophile. <laughs> there are there are like there were receipts from his uh like on his phone from like cash app of him sending money to underage girls um so you know bad things bad things happening there uh that investigation got killed because the bourgeoisie uh protects its allies but comma we do not have speaker of the house right now um so uh something i, I think i guess I, we should also mention is so there's like a if there's no speaker of the house there's some guy they put in who's like is not actually an acting speaker of the house. The only thing he can do effectively is like make sure that there's votes specifically on there being another speaker of the house. Yeah. And this has thrown the entire American political system into chaos because with no speaker of the house, the house of representatives cannot pass bills. They can't do it. They cannot pass any bills at all. And because of the way that the American system was designed not having this one person shuts down the entire, effectively shut, it shuts down the entire legislative branch, right? Because you can't get anything passed through the Senate without also getting it ratified in the House. Um, and this has just shut down effectively, like most of the American government outside of the, like, you know, I mean, so the executive branches and all of the departments and stuff are still functioning. But there is no legislative branch right now, effectively, is, is, is what has happened, right? I, th- I, I think maybe subcommittee meetings are still running. But they can't pass any bills. And this is both a blessing and a curse. Normally, this, I think, would just be a curse. I don't know. Maybe right now, this is probably the best possible time this could have happened because the consequence of this has been the U.S. has been unable to follow through on its most sort of just rabidly genocidal impulses about Palestine. Because, again, the House literally cannot pass any bills until they figure this shit out. So we haven't been able to send money to Israel. We haven't been able to send, like, God forbid, like, we haven't been able to deploy any troops, which I don't know if they, I don't know if there was actually the political desire to do that anyways. But, you know, the fact, the fact that there was no speaker in the immediate wake of the stuff that's been happening in Palestine means that, you know, they've, they've been restrained from just like glassing the entire Middle East, which is, which is good. Uh, the downside is that, again, we have until November 17th <laughs> to uh, pass a funding bill to avert the government shutdown. And not only is there like no progress on a deal about that bill, like the American legislature is currently incapable of passing any bill, much less the spending bill. So things are going great in the American political system. And okay, so we, we should we should ask the question: Why is this happening? And there are both sort of short and long answers to this question. Um, both of them effectively have the same root, which is that the Republican Party is a coalition. It, it's one that usually has pretty broadly compatible politics, but it is a coalition between different sectors of capital. So think, for example, you know you have your different right wing like tech mogul billionaires, right? Like Elon Musk or like Peter Thiel. But these people align on a lot of stuff, but they don't necessarily have the same interests as like a weapons manufacturer or like Coke Industries or I mean, just like, you know, like one one, one of the big sort of tensions, for example, is that the Republican Party has a lot of backing among the financial sector, 
Uh, the financial sector has very little interest in conflict with China because they have an enormous amount of capital like tied up in Chinese firms. Uh, there are a lot of other like people who have a lot of oh, like like even this is this is a thing between Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, right? Where like Musk is kind of more pro-China than like the average like Republican tech billionaire because he has a bunch of contracts in a giant factory in China. And, and so, so okay, so this, this is a coalition between different segments of capital who disagree. This is also a coalition between different like right-wing social movements uh, who are also, you know, a very powerful part of the party. You, know, you have evangelical stuff. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the, the consequence of this and the consequence of the sort of shift right of American politics has been you now have this party where there are like libertarians alongside neocons. You have more moderate conservatives and you have basic people who are effectively neo-Nazis. And the fact that the coalition is like this now, the fact that it is genuinely more so than it's been in a long time, a very broad and diverse coalition. This has made the House of Representatives effectively unmanageable. Okay, and th- and this has been a real issue in in the Republican Party for a while now, partially because, you know, and this is this is why we're getting the government shutdown stuff. Like a big part of Republican strategy for the last decade, basically since Obama took office, has just been shutting down the government and doing arch obstructionism, so that you know nothing can get done. And wait, Gary, have you have you been? Do you remember the last government shutdown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was only like two years ago. Yeah, it feels uh, well, like trying to think. maybe maybe it was longer. It feels like it was pretty recent. There was no, no well, it was, I think it was one in twenty eighteen. I think it was like yeah. It, I see because in my brain we're still in twenty twenty. Oh yeah, we're yeah, actually we're less twenty. So when I said <laughs> when I say two years ago, what I mean is twenty eighteen. Yeah, I mean, and it's that one was funny because that was a that was a Republican president. Yeah, yeah. Which is very funny, but yeah, but you know, but back when Obama was in office, like this just happened all the fucking time. Like every other week, there was like a threat of a government. Every single time a bill, like a, a funding bill, was going to pass Congress, like I had a bunch of family members get furloughed. Well, at one point, because the government actually did shut down for a long time. But there's a real problem with this, which is that this political strategy encourages effectively the it, it encourages creating chaos right and this is something that trump has been very good at sort of exploiting but it also means that there's now this like cadre of politicos who've come up who are like incredibly right-wing and effectively the only thing they know how to do is obstructing anything from functioning and this is what mccarthy ran into he ran into gates and his sort of like band of mary well i don't know um, i was gonna call them a band of mary weirdos but that's way too complimentary his band of like absolute fanatics and the real issue here is that okay so there's currently two vacant seats in the house so this means right now to win a vote in the full house to become speaker of the house you need 217 votes sorry hold on there's new shit happening like right now uh McCarthy thinks that Jim Jordan has 217 votes. I don't know if I believe him. I don't know. Well, well, I'll I'll just explain what's happening now, and then we'll put that at the end as like breaking news. Insert that at the end, Daniel. Thank you. Um, or yeah. keep it in right now as a funny bit. Yes, because this situation is still de- is still developing as of time of recording. So yeah, like as, as yeah, something it's only we should mention. You know, th- this this process is complicated enough that like yeah, as we are recording it, stuff is changing rapidly. Like stuff has been news is coming in. 
So what's been making it hard is that in order to get 217 votes, right, the Republican majority is only they only have 221 votes. So if you want to become Speaker of the House, you can only lose four total votes. And this means you have to win both the moderates and Matt Gates's coalition of fanatics. And this is effectively impossible. It is it is unbelievably difficult. Um, McCarthy was able to do this because he pulled votes from the far right by like promising things like impeaching Biden and stuff like that. And also <laughs> sort of cutting cutting his own deals with uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who yeah. like and, and this is and this is the other thing about about this impeachment vote is that it, it's not actually a purely ideological lines like far right versus moderate vote because no, no like he he even split the more extreme contingent of the Republican Party in Congress. It, 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 it's 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 really bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre because you can't like understand it, but it is certainly interesting where where the dividing lines and ended up being for a lot of the people that we consider mostly being on the same side, right? Because usually people imagine like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene usually in the same kind of far right voting block, and to see like divisions over over this vote is certainly uh, an interesting aspect of you know, possible fractures within the even the extreme contingent of the Republican Party. Yeah. And, and this and this has been a, a really interesting dynamic, but it also makes it just like impossible. Like you have to in, in, in order to do this, you have to somehow appease the moderates and Gates. And like you're dealing with multiple different right wing fringe factions. Yeah. And, and, th- and this is, you know, uh, we'll be talking more about uh, the Freedom Caucus in a little bit, but. You have to like you're at a point where you're trying to appease so many different groups of people who all have kind of competing agendas, who also just have like personal beef with each other. And as of right now, time of recording, which is 2 p.m. Pacific time on Friday, no one has been able to actually pull together this vote. Um, We're going to take an ad break and then we're going to talk about who else actually needs to be appeased by these same people. Is is it the products and services that support it this is. podcast? Ronald Reagan coin looks down upon Congress every single time that guy hits that little hammer. And Ronald Reagan coin also looks down upon all of you. I think I, I think I have a good idea where to put my new uh my new 401k investment in. I'm gonna do all all gold coin. Move all that good over God. to gold coin. It's stable. It's gonna be worth it's it it, it 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 holds value, and that is that is definitely my plan. Oh, we're back. Hello, everybody. I uh, sorry did didn't did did not realize you were already back so soon. I was just talking with Mia about expanding my investment portfolio. Anyway, as as you were saying, so what has happened after that? The answer is an absolute clown show. Um, I mean, this is this is one of the most like I mean, genuinely. Let's, let's let's not disparage clowns, shall we? That's true. This is unfair to we, clowns. We, this is we could have clowns in the audience. We could have closeted clowns in this phone call. So. That's true. That's true. Okay. I, I, I yes. I, I've been being unfair to clowns by comparing them to the Republican Party. Thank, this thank has you, been you. this has been one of the most pathetic displays of politics I've ever seen, and I have followed the political trajectory of Israeli labor. I, like this is this is it's been truly awful. So, all right. So so McCarthy is ousted. The problem immediately is that no one has anywhere close to enough votes to replace him. Like. Like and when when I say no one like McCarthy McCarthy went down by he lost eight votes from the Republicans, yeah, yeah. Uh, no one else is within like sixty, right? So like what? Like 
this wasn't just a power move for Gates then. Like he he like was was he looking to take the spot or no no there's Gates has absolutely no shot of of winning. He would get like ten votes maybe, like basically nothing. Um, what he was trying to and this is this is kind of Gates is in this kind of obstructionism thing where he he's trying the thing he's trying to do basically is he's trying to like. He, he's trying to set up himself as a political flank of like the most Republicans, the Republicans and everyone else are these like sellouts who work with the Democrats. Yeah. Um, and he's he's also been trying. So so Gates's preferred candidate is a guy named Jim Jordan. Um, Jim Jordan is the found is, he was the founding head of the powerful far, far right Freedom Caucus. And he's a real he's a real piece of work. He's, he's bad. I, I feel yeah. like Jim Jordan has been a recurring character on this show. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. He's in, he, he like, he's, he's not, not a very quite, nice fellow in my opinion. No, he sucks. Like he's not quite like a full on neo-Nazi in the no, way that no. like, yeah, but like he's not good. He's 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 from like the far right. He's yeah, from, yeah. What I, would, I guess you would call the like the more acceptable far right of the Republican Party. Like he's from the Freedom Caucus, like is is a like a very right wing organization, even within the Republican Party. But they're not seen as like weird fringe fanatics in the way. Yeah, that, like, at the very Gates least, his, like, they will happily are, hold the door open towards people that are even like like even way way more extreme um, yeah 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 and, he's, and that's he's been, true he's been serving uh in congress since like 2007 yeah um, he, he's, a very, he's, he's a very he's a very he's one of the guys he's, he's been like the architect of a lot of well not the architect he's been one of the, the the figures behind a lot of the sort of um like government shutdown stuff he's been he's he's been one of the guys who's kind of like i don't know like he didn't because he, he didn't come in on the Tea Party wave. He came in before that, but he, he, he he's been he's been a guy before, who's yeah. been pushing that kind of sort of like that kind of very very right wing politics. Um, yeah. His his original opponent was Steve Scalise, who is a kind of semi McCarthy ally, kind of, and you will see him described as being more moderate than than Jim Jordan, and that is. Maybe kind of true in the sense that like he's being back in the fact that like like Jim Jordan is being backed by like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and like Donald Trump. Um, this is after Trump gave up his bid to like become Speaker of the House himself. He backed which Jim would Jordan. have been the funniest outcome. Yeah, it would have been very funny. But however, we don't we don't live in the funniest all possible timeline. Sadly, no, we live in the worst one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that didn't happen. Um, so. But the problem is the other guy is is again is Steve Scalise and again he's called a moderate. Scalise also wants there there is a report of him calling himself and I quote David Duke without the baggage, and in 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 the, in the early two thousands he spoke at a David at a, at a, at a, at, a, at a rally for a group founded by David Duke. Mm-hmm. What <laughs> without the baggage. <laughs> What is left of David Duke? Like, how? What does that well, sentence actually mean? Like, what, what, let's what, think what, about okay, that so sentence. Like, we should. I guess, I guess we should mention. So, David Duke. If people don't remember, David Duke was the the, the Grand Wizard. The Grand Wizard of the KKK. Yes. Yeah. So, when when he says David Duke without the baggage, what he means is that he 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 has David Duke's politics, but he doesn't have the immediate what the fuck association you get when you mention the head of the fucking KKK. Yeah. That that that's what he was going for, right? So, this is not a good guy. He's being presented as, a, and again, this is what passes for like a moderate. I mean, he's kind of in the moderate right, but like this is what passes for a fucking moderate Republican in twenty in twenty twenty three, right? Like these people have always sucked. They've always fucking been like this. Um, Seems and like you know, a but problem. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a real issue that again, like this guy who is uh, like speaking at like it should like in in any even remotely normal political system, having given a speech at, at a rally for an organization ran by David Duke would immediately be disqualifying. But, you know, no, like you can just do that. You you can do that and you get to be a moderate in 2023. But the problem with the problem Scalise has is that Scalise's problem isn't that, again, like clan bullshit. It's the fact that the way that votes for the Speaker of the House work is that so there's an internal blind vote inside of the inside of the Republican Party where each 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 representative gets to anonymously vote. Like each Republican representative gets to anonymously vote for their preferred candidates. So Jim Jordan, like, kind of narrowly loses out to Scalise in the first round in the first vote. So he he loses uh, 113 to 99, and so Scalise comes out as the guy who's the nominee for the Republicans. Right. Problem is Scalise lasts one day as that guy. Because the problem is, to actually become speaker, you need to win a vote on the House floor. And the vote on the House floor with everyone in the House, including the Democrats, that's where he needs to win 217 votes. He did not have it. He so incredibly did not have it that, again, within a day of him winning this vote, he is out. So Scalise is now out of the race. Um, what what has been so the, the developments literally as we are recording this, Jim Jordan has won a vote to become like the next uh he's, he's the next person to win a vote because he's running against just a fucking clown sorry i'm being offensive to clowns he's just like a nobody <laughs> like just like some dipshit the republicans like picked off off the street right like th- this is where we're at like there's no one like if, if jim if jim jordan can't do this like there's like i don't know like it would like bring mccarthy back like there's nothing he he like jordan jim jordan's like the last even semi-serious political figure in the republican party who could even conceivably do this so Jim Jordan has won the vote inside of the Republican Party. However, comma, and, and also the other important thing that happened literally as we were recording is that he's been he's been endorsed by McCarthy now, which is kind of a big deal. McCarthy has said publicly that he thinks that Jim Jordan has the votes. I don't believe him and I don't believe him because immediately after he said that it came out that Jim Jordan is 60 votes short. On the floor of the House, 60, 6, 0. He is screwed. There's no way. Like, he has to get through 60, 60 votes. And I, I, there's no way. I, 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 don't, I don't see a path for him to do this, even, even with McCarthy's support. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a way for him to do this. Um, as of time of recording, the thing that has happened is that the Republicans have all gone home because they get out at five. And he's going to try to spend the weekends, like, building up support, trying to build up enough votes in the House to like win speakership but yeah this has it, it not seems, worked it's, for... it seems like it's it seems like a pretty uh pretty out I don't there know, like, uh, chance it's it, it's possible that like on like monday or tuesday or something when the, like when this comes out i'll be eating crow and i'll have to record that's, like that, a that's true special because, update but yes because this does come out after the weekend so yeah we will, but i we will i don't buy this i i absolutely just do not buy that jim jordan has enough votes um this is this 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 is this is my analysis. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But guessing it's sixty votes, <laughs> and like, there's no way. There's no way. So th- this is this is this is a fact. This is the current state of Congress right now. 
like we don't we don't have a legislative branch. Uh, everything everything is in chaos. Nothing. One can down, happen. two more to go. We're almost there, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> we almost. <laughs> well, the executives. If we if hail, we can knock out the executive, energy. if we can knock out the executive, the the judiciary will fall by itself. Uh, yeah. So. That's that is certainly certainly exciting. There's always always good things to look forward to. Yeah, um, but you know, I I th- I think the, I think a closing note on this is that the the fact that the U.S. effectively can't do anything right now while it's in the middle of a pretty serious like a couple of well not even one it's in the middle of like several very very serious uh, international political crises and wars is has i don't know it's 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 been the thing right now that has been restraining the u.s from just like really going all out and trying to get everyone in palestine killed so i guess there's that but i don't know our our government is a joke uh yeah and like and i i guess i guess the last thing i want to say is i i want to invite all of you everyone is listening to this to look at these absolute numbskulls like look at what they're doing right now they can't even pick the one guy who is necessary for the entire legislative branch to function and i want you to ask yourself could we do this could like any of you and like your neighbors and your friends run a political system better than this because i bet the answer is yes Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As mass bombing continues across Gaza, 2.3 million Palestinians remain trapped in the Strip as the Israeli military conducts a total blockade. Israel has cut off water, electricity, and fuel while intentionally restricting humanitarian aid from being sent into Gaza. This is It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison Davis. On October 7th, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech addressing Palestinians inside Gaza. A part of the official English translation of the speech reads, quote, All of the places which Hamas is deployed, hiding, and operating in, that wicked city, we will turn them into rubble. I say to the residents of Gaza, leave now because we will operate forcefully everywhere, unquote. The next sentence in the speech was left untranslated, but it roughly read, quote, we will target each and every corner of the strip, unquote. According to the UN, by last Thursday, October 12th, about 423,000 people had been displaced from their homes by Israeli airstrikes. That's about 25% of the Palestinian population. Many sought refuge in crowded United Nations shelters set up in schools, but even those shelters and hospitals were attacked by air. Last Friday, October 13th, Israel issued a military order for all citizens in northern Gaza, including Gaza City, to evacuate their homes within a 24-hour period, in apparent preparation of a major ground assault on the besieged enclave. Over one million Palestinians live in this area. It's almost half the population of Gaza. In between bombings, Israeli military aircraft dropped thousands of leaflets into Gaza City, advising civilians to immediately leave their homes and the UN shelters, but not to actually try and leave Gaza, as the leaflet warned that if anyone approached the Israel-Gaza security wall, they would, quote, expose themselves to death, unquote. Israel laid out just a few roads that it was supposed to be, quote-unquote, safe to travel southbound. Thousands of people in northern Gaza began to flee towards the Strip's southern half on Friday morning, But as they were following Israel's orders, civilian convoys transporting Palestinian families out of Gaza City were bombed by the Israeli military at three different points along the evacuation route. At least 70 people were killed, with hundreds more injured by the Israeli airstrikes as they were trying to follow Israel's impossible order to evacuate everyone from their homes in just 24 hours. 
Between Netanyahu's speech and the evacuation order of northern Gaza, this leaves people questioning, where exactly are these people supposed to go? A Palestinian in Gaza told the Associated Press, quote, We can't flee because anywhere you go, you are bombed, unquote. Gaza isn't that big. It's only 25 miles long, and it's completely surrounded by Israel and the Mediterranean Sea, save for a small section on the southern tip which borders Egypt. With Israel sealing off access to Gaza, the only way in or out is the Rafah border crossing located at the southern end of the strip, bordering Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. The Rafah crossing is a critical passage for humanitarian aid and serves as a vital gateway between Gaza and the outside world. One of the very first targets of Israeli bombing this month was the Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Egypt. It was targeted by three air raids in a 24-hour period, severely damaging the crossing, preventing it from operating, and resulting in fatalities. There's video and audio of the bombings where you hear hundreds of people make a singular scream. It's pretty gruesome. With Israel undergoing a quote-unquote complete siege of Gaza, this crossing was the only way to send humanitarian supplies into the Strip and to let willing refugees flee the assault. The Egyptian foreign minister has said that Israel has yet to allow the reopening of the crossing. Egypt is expected to assist in delivering humanitarian aid to Palestinians in the enclave, but it has rejected proposals to accept fleeing Palestinians into its borders. Both Egypt and Israel operate a blockade of Gaza to strictly control the passage of people and supplies going in and out of the Strip. There is no freedom of movement to enter or leave Gaza even when there's not a declared war. One can't simply leave Gaza. There is no Gaza airport, at least not since 2002. Historically, the Rafah border crossing into the Egyptian peninsula was only open to the public very sporadically, and often for very narrowly defined categories such as medical patients, religious pilgrims, foreign residents, or residents of Gaza with foreign visas or passports. But I don't have to tell you how hard it is to leave Gaza, even when there's not a war, because late last year, we interviewed two Palestinians for a still upcoming episode that's being worked on. During the interview, they touched on their own experiences escaping Gaza. So we're going to play some of that interview for this episode, and I'll jump in occasionally to add some context. So here is Ahmed Matar and Abdullah Al-Kassab. Athletes from PK Gaza, one of the most recognized parkour teams in the world. My name is Ahmad Matar. I'm 26 years old. Uh, I'm from Gaza, Palestine, and I do parkour. I live at the moment in Sweden because, uh, yeah, I moved to Sweden six years ago after I, I got invited for the Airworld Challenge. It's a parkour competition that was organized in Sweden in Helsingborg. And uh, yeah, since that time, I just live in Sweden because I just did not want to go back for so many reasons that we can just talk about it later in this episode. Hey guys, I'm, I'm Abdallah. I'm 25 years old and also I'm a parkour athlete. And I'm also right now in Italy. I, I got a chance to travel to Italy because I, I participated in a, in a, in a, in a movie or in a film, which which is the director is Emanuele Girosa. He's he's 
an Italian movie. It's called Mojamba. My friend, he was the main character. I was one of the characters in the film. So we got a chance to, to, to participate in a festival in Sicilia. And it wasn't really easy. It was really hard to, to, to do it because, uh, because, you know, having a visa, Ahmed also knows that it's, uh, we, we get a visa as a Palestinian, especially from Gaza City, is something really, really hard. And even though it's not also about having the visa, it's about traveling outside Gaza. It's something else. This is also a completely different story, but we could manage that. And I've been here in Italy. I came to participate in Sicilia, first of all. Me and my friend, we managed to get the Schengen visa, and it was just for five days. And uh, now um, I'm here in Italy for almost 11 months. In the other city, you, when, when you were there, it is not, you, you don't really feel free as, as free, you know, because uh, you're surrounded all the time by so many obstacles, you know, which is, which is really crazy. And it drives, even though because we were really, kids and uh, the, we, we didn't have a really good childhood somehow. Yeah, I remember since we were, we were kids, we were seeing the tanks or, or what is it called? Yeah, the tanks that bombed something. We were seeing it in front of the street and we were hearing bombs and shootings. And, and that was before 2005. That was like, since I was four years, I could remember all of that moments where the tanks are crossing our road and we were seeing that attacks happening between people together and bombs and flights and drones and and that's uh, something that for sure affects us as a kid that we 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 get the fear whenever we we see some bombs and just we want to hide from the bombs and we want to to be close to the family for me yeah, all of these things that happened around me affected me that I wanted to be that guy who would like to, to enjoy life. In the same time, Gaza was a place that we had the situation we, where we are the psychologically, or how, how is it called? Like when you are affected by the situation where we, you know that you are, you can be dead any moment or you can get a bomb close to you any moment or someone close to you who die. I mean, kids, the most important for the kids is just you know, safety. And uh, we didn't have safety. The safety is what kids really want, you know, all the time. I mean, when you're a kid, you just need your mom or your dad next to you because you really feel this kind of safety. But when we were kids, we, we couldn't have this kind of feeling because even our parents, they, they were not really sure what might happen to us or to them. So how they will protect us. So it's not really easy for anyone to protect the others, you know. No one able to, you know, to, to do that. That's something um affected us for sure like because we 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 grown up on, on such things like that maybe for me now if if you we were talking about this is maybe something usual which is something normal because i really got used to it somehow which is not normal i mean it should be normal for anyone but for us it, you know we call it kind of normal because it's kind of we we used to and now when i really because before i I was really a kid, so I didn't know what, what is really going on. I was really terrified. 
and I was really scared and I didn't know what is really going to happen. But now when I'm, I'm kind of, you know, adult and I know what is really going on and I see the kids uh, when, when, because for example, the last war, especially when I'm even outside Gaza, it's completely, completely different, you know, because when you're inside Gaza, you're with your family and with your friends, blah, blah, blah. It's really different. But uh, now when I can see how the kids, they are screaming, how the kids, they, they, they have this kind of feeling, you know, that, you know, they are really terrified of the bombs because they are, it's next to them so I can really remember myself and I just go through back you know the the, the memory you know, the stories that really happened we are the memories a lot of memories before about that it was it was really crazy we're gonna go on a quick ad break but when we get back Ahmed will talk about his long experience trying to leave Gaza when Ahmed was younger, he began to share videos online of his athletic skills, slowly gaining notoriety around the world for his pretty impressive parkour ability. Soon, both himself and PK Gaza were being invited around the world to perform a parkour or to enter into parkour competitions. PK Gaza was invited to the Arabian TV show Arabs Got Talent, but they were unable to go on the program due to difficulties traveling outside Gaza. During this time period, the Rafah border crossing into Egypt was only open around six times a year and for only a few days. To catch a flight out of Egypt, you need to have all of your proper paperwork, tickets, and a valid visa which lines up perfectly for when the Rafah border crossing happens to be open. And you have to also hope that you're not in the back of the line to get through the border crossing because they only let a certain number of people through each day. Ahmed was invited to participate in the Red Bull Parkour Challenge in China and even successfully got a visa to travel, but wasn't able to leave Gaza because the Rafah border crossing was closed during the time frame when the visa was valid. The US-based World Freerunning and Parkour Federation tried to help Ahmed travel to the United States to participate in the WFPF's 2016 competition in Las Vegas, but Ahmed was unable to get an American travel visa due to long wait times to use the northern border crossing into Jerusalem. And even if you did manage to get into Israel, it was quite difficult to receive a U.S. travel visa as applicants were frequently denied. A parkour gym in Italy frequently invited Ahmed to participate in their summer and winter events, but the Italian embassy denied requests for a travel visa three times. In late 2016, Ahmed got invited to the Air Whip Parkour Challenge in Sweden, and with the help of some Swedish friends, he was able to secure a travel visa in just two weeks. Unfortunately, when Ahmed got the visa, the Rafa crossing was closed. But by pure luck, just one day later, it was announced that the crossing would be reopening. When he went to the crossing, he learned that there were 30,000 people in line in front of him. With the crossing only set to be open briefly and the temporary visa set to expire, it was not looking great. After a very challenging series of events that Ahmed is about to explain, he was able to get to Sweden. And just last year, he starred in a play about his own life and his journey traveling from Gaza to Sweden. Tell us a little bit about this. this there's going to be a play about your life that they're doing in Sweden. So we have had the premiere for the play in the oh, cool. 29th of May. Uh, so we have been doing the show for a while now. Like we have had eight performances at the moment. And the play is uh, about 
me, uh, wow. my family, and uh, my friends from Piki Gaza. Uh, also, it talks about the journey from Gaza to Sweden, which was the biggest part of the play. That, yeah, talking exactly about how it is to face the visa embassy, Egyptian control, Egyptian security when we get out of Gaza, that they have to also Palestinian side that they have to interview us every like I have if I have the visa let's say I got the visa after some trials then I have to apply for the travel which I have to stand in the queue behind all of that people who already applied before me uh, which is imagine I'm 30,000 my queue number is 30,000 then I have to wait and it Okay, let's say I got in front of all of that people and uh, today I am here in the Palestinian side. Then this Palestinian side in Rafah borders have to interview me and check all, uh, why do I need to travel? Show me your documents. If I have any mistake in my documents and I go back to Gaza, even if all my documents, I have the visa and everything. And then if he don't want me to travel, then I have to stay in Gaza. Okay, let's say I did pass the Palestinian side. I am in the Egyptian security side. And there, one time, the Egyptian security sent me back to Gaza. After waiting, I have the visa. And I was like, no, uh, what are you going to do? I'm going to do parkour. I have a parkour competition. Oh, what is parkour? Hey, <laughs> jump. Oh, then you go jump back in Gaza. <laughs> I had to go back. And my family did not expect I would be back in Gaza because I was at home around 5 a.m. in the morning. And I was a whole day like waiting to get, get to the Egyptian side. And then from there, he sent me back. And uh, yeah, in the end, I mean, without the help I got, I would not have traveled because 30,000 people in front of me. I have the queue number, but I am behind them. Mm-hmm. And I have the visa that will expire in two days, or like let's say that it starts in two days and it will expire in 20 days. And if I don't travel in this 20 days, my visa will expire and then I cannot travel to Sweden. And the only thing I had to do was like going to the crossing the first day with my father. He went with me and we just stand there in front of the crossing. It's, you know, there is a control, there is a list with names that you cannot really cross if you don't get any help. So I go there and then we just waited around six hours, me and my father. Then the sunset came and good dark. And then he was like, I cannot do anything. We have to go back. And then we went back home. The day after, my father, I tell my father, please, can we go? I have to travel. I have the visa. <laughs> I just will expire. And then he was like, uh, well, I cannot do anything. He don't know what he will do, my father. So I told him, okay, I will go for the guy. We we have a, a guy close to us, like let's say my neighbor, but he's a far neighbor. And he was the manager of the crossings between us, like managing of uh, coordinating the uh, visas or like the list between us and Egypt. So he can really do whatever he wants. He can enter Egypt whenever he wants. He's a very friend between Egyptians. So he's the manager of the crystal. He's the, the boss. So I go to him and I wait him outside his car. Like outside, I was close to his car, waiting him to get out of his home. I know he go to his work around eight in the morning. 
Then I wake up at seven in the morning and I go there waiting him to come to his car. I see his car, then I was really happy that he did not leave to his work. And I knew that he's still there. And then I was waiting, waiting. And then he came. And then I show him my visa and I really have to travel today. I have the competition and I have to join this competition. And then he was like, okay, but uh, do you have the queue number? Yes, but uh, I am the last in the list. Okay, but how will we do? I cannot tell you, but I have already, I told him, I have already been into Egypt before, but the Egyptian security sent me back to Gaza. And they, they, he told me, do you have the registration of that, uh, the time you travel? And I told him, yes, and did have that that time. And it was okay. Follow me to the crossing. I told him, yeah, but uh, I, I, can I go with you in your car? So you don't forget me when you go there, <laughs> because he, he he's very like people just run after him when in the crossing area and then there i i had to tell him i want to go with you and he said yes okay you can come with me and then he told me but you cannot stop i told him can i stop here and say goodbye to my family first because they did not know that i will travel i just took a very small bag with me in case i really had like a backpack with me and uh, he said yeah but you cannot stop I have to go now. And then I was okay. I called my mom. Mom, he's going to help me. And I, but I cannot stop to say goodbye. And then, yeah, I went to the crossing and he put me into like a VIP list that I had to go, like in a very special bus that was just five people in it. And I was very like respected by the control there and it was like i got all the way to the to egypt and in egypt i really met the same guy that he also asked me about parkour and he was like oh you <laughs> and then my friend the guy the manager of the crossing told me show him what parkour is <laughs> i really had to do a flip for him i did a webster in that room where he the control uh, trick, and I was, oh, wow, so cool. Okay, here is the stamp, enter to Egypt. <laughs> but in <laughs> Egypt, I had to go into that uh, airport. He did not know, you know, the Egyptians don't understand the visa. Like if, if it's in the visa, it says that it's gonna be valid in, in this day. If it's valid in this, like imagine I get the visa today, but it's not valid yet. But the crossing is open today and tomorrow and the day after. I have to travel in this three days, then the crossing will close for another six months. So I had to travel in that days, otherwise I will lose my visa. So my visa was not valid at that time I traveled from Gaza. So he thought that it's, it's valid. So he was, oh, go to the airport now and travel from there. He thought that I can travel to Europe directly. But if my visa is not valid, Europe would not let me in. So I had to stay in the airport that time that my visa was not valid, which was say, five days. And then in the end, I traveled, but it, I had to wait in the airport because he did not understand my visa. <laughs> no one should have to do a Webster front flip to cross a border. Because there was still one week left until the visa became valid, Egyptian security sent Ahmed straight to the airport to wait for the week. While in limbo at the airport, the Egyptian authorities locked him in a small room without his phone or his belongings until the visa became valid. After many harsh difficulties and compounding inconveniences, Ahmed boarded his plane for Europe. Ahmed has built a life for himself in Sweden. 
He's been teaching parkour classes there for years now. In fact, that's how the play came about. The mother of one of his students is a theater director, and she became interested in his story. By his account, life is much better for him now, but he still is not free to see his own family or to go back to his original home. Getting into Gaza is almost as hard as getting out of Gaza. And uh, hopefully you guys can get back and see your families too, because I know that must be really difficult, uh, being separated and not being able to get back. Yeah, it's been uh, six years almost. Jesus, man. Yeah, that's really hard. But you know, Dramaten, the theater, I've invited my brother, and luckily he got the visa from first time. He got help from the same guy. Uh, that helped me. He went yeah. to him and asked oh. him, and he put him into a special list. He traveled from Gaza without having to wait, and then now he's here. Um, oh wow! He didn't have to do a backflip in the visa. <laughs> no, he did not because he's an artist and he had the visa and everything. Uh, so he got the visa because in Dramaten, the theater yeah. center, invited yeah. him to be a part of the show with his oh cool piece of fabric that he drew mm-hmm. through. Yeah, and Abdullah the same way with the travel, and so everyone is like, you know, if you don't have someone to help you, you would not travel. Right. From. Yeah, it shouldn't be that way. Abdullah had to get it also help because his visa also was also one week, <laughs> one week, and he had to travel in that week, and he's named the last of the list. <laughs> Unfortunately, Abdullah had some internet issues, and some of the audio isn't usable. But he similarly only made it out of Gaza because he had a friend who had a contact at the Italian consulate. When Abdullah tried to apply for the visa, the office wasn't taking any more applications, but this friend was able to explain Abdullah's situation to the consulate and they decided to give him a travel visa. Abdullah also had to travel through Egypt and was forced to stay in a small prison cell for three days without food or water. Once he got to the Cairo airport, The German airline he was booked on refused to accept his paperwork because they didn't want the responsibility of stamping his passport. With the alternative of just going back to Gaza, Abdullah was able to find a manager of sorts and explain his situation with the travel visa and needing to go to this film premiere for this parkour thing. You know, it's not the easiest thing to explain. Not everyone knows what parkour is, but the manager was sympathetic. And then, just like what happened with Ahmed, they requested a parkour demonstration to see if this guy was actually telling the truth. So, the already exhausted Abdullah did a backflip in the airport as he was recovering from the COVID vaccine. And then, the manager, seemingly satisfied, transferred him from this German airline to an Egyptian airline, and he was able to make it to Italy and escape the prison of Gaza. When, when you're anyone who's in prison, the only thing that he thinks about, I mean, when you're in prison for the whole life, I mean, the only thing that you think about is just how to escape, no? I mean, that's normally because you just want to, to, to be free because you're in prison. I have never been into the prison. So. I mean, I've never. <laughs> no, no, we both say we. <laughs> I mean, I've been to the prison of Gaza, but not the real one. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. So we both, we were in a prison, (laughs) which is open, big prison. And the only way that we were thinking about is how to get out of that. And the only that was really possible is just to use parkour as an opportunity for us so we can get our freedom. 
and somehow now you're in Sweden, I'm in Italy. We have this kind of freedom, but at the same time, it's really hard because our families, our friends, and everyone, we still connected. Not the full freedom. Exactly. So it's like still connected. Like, I mean, I was trying to meet my family last uh, this summer, and I applied for the Egyptian visa because I still don't have the uh, Swedish passport. So I have to apply as a Palestinian to go back or to visit Egypt. So I applied for the Egyptian visa to visit my family because my mother was in Egypt and she was there to to attend the marriage of my uncle. But uh, she was there in Egypt with with my sister. And uh, yeah, I applied for the visa. I never got the visa, so I had to stay in Sweden. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like I'm not free yet. I mean, yeah, I will get the Swedish passport soon. I don't know when, but I'm sure it's not more than six months from now because I have been applying. I have applied six months ago and it's usually not more than a year to get the decision. And usually it's accepted if you have everything correct in the country, like if you're legal and you pay the tax and you're working, you're studying and other language. I'm good there. I just like, I have to wait. So in the end, I will be able to meet them. I would not be able, I would not say I will be free to enter Gaza whenever I want because, yeah, to enter Gaza at the moment I hear from people, it takes like three to four days and you suffer in the way, just like you have to stay in the car these three days and every thousand kilometers, uh, thousand meters, you get stopped by a control, like a road control that they need to check everything you have, every bag you have. Yeah, that's for sure. Take it out in the road and you have to put it back by yourself. And then the car continues, another thousand kilo, another control. And then in the end you arrive like Gaza and you say, this is the worst part of my travel to Gaza because they don't want to do it again. They don't want to get to Gaza and suffer the same way again. And the same to get out of Gaza, to get out of Gaza, I mean, if I have the Swedish passport, for sure, I will have uh, I will have the ability to travel from Gaza without worrying about oh, getting a visa or not. But in the same time, yeah, I need to wait on a queue. Oh, when will I travel? When I will be able to travel from Gaza? Is it like going to be one month, two months, three months? Because it's like thousands of people who want to travel. And it's just they allow 500 people a day. And that's maximum. And then... They don't allow any more of that people, and then also they they close the crossing at any moment. And I remember the time I traveled from Gaza was the crossing was closed for six months, three six months, and it was non oh it was not open at all, and there was thirty one thousand people in front of me in the queue, thirty one thousand. So imagine like I was the last person in the queue, and I have to wait all of these people to travel and the crossing was open just the three days every three months. That means like in this three days, it's 1,500. When is the rest going to travel? When will I have to travel? And imagine you have a, a visa that is valid for like 10 days. If you get the visa just for an event in Europe, that is just the three days. And then you get the visa for 10 days. And then if you don't travel in that 10 days, your visa gets expired and then you have to apply for a new visa. 
And then after that, you have to wait because if you get the refused visa, you cannot apply directly. You have to wait six, three to six months and then you can apply for the new visa. So it's really terrible. Like, I don't want to go through all of that process again. And that's why I decide to stay in Sweden and work in Sweden and get a Swedish citizenship where I can travel freely without worrying about oh, getting a visa or not. And because till now, because I'm not Swedish, I have to think about getting a visa or not. Will I be refused visa or not? And even Egyptian embassy refused my visa. And they did not even answer me. I call them every day. Did I get the visa? When will you give me the visa? I go to their office here in Stockholm, the embassy, like, oh, uh, you have to call us. Send us an email. And I call and send the email. Oh, we will call you when you get the visa. But will you call me back if I don't get the visa? No, we will call you when you get the visa. <laughs> they never call. <laughs> okay. yeah. And then they said to my mom, I'm not coming to Egypt. <laughs> yeah, that sounds rough. And I know for a long time, Abdullah was in Gaza when you were in Sweden, right? And Abdullah was trying yeah. to get the visa to travel. Last time we spoke, you hadn't been able to get one. So I'm glad you did. I'm glad you're now a film star. He have been applying many times also. Yeah. And I remember we, we went yeah. together many times. And I also like, there is a Sweden also invited him and Jihad also. And they got refused visa. And I'm sure he applied before also to Italy and he applied for England. Yeah. <laughs> so I also applied Italy. I got refused Italian visa around four times. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I got the refused visa from uh, Norway, Oslo at that time event in 2013 and uh, USA invited me like for Las Vegas and uh, WFDF invited me for an event in Las Vegas that I could not take and also Germany Hamburg and uh, Hanover they invited me and it was many events that I could not make. In the end, I could make it to Airweb, but the first year of the Airweb, like they invited me to 2015 and I, could, I applied for the visa, I did not get it. And then the year after 2016, I got the visa because I had the help also from another private invitation. So I got double invitations that it made it stronger for the uh, consulate, the embassy in Jerusalem to, uh, the, the visa and it was like yeah it was 21 days visa and directly when i arrived within us like my friend knew i don't want to go back so they took me to the immigration office in helsingborg uh, in malmo and there i extended my visa for six months first and in that six months i wanted to work and stay here so i started to look for a job and I started my own job. I should, like start to work with parkour myself, like making classes that I was teaching in English. And I had one of the students translating to the kids in Swedish. So he was getting free classes. And, I was, and it was tough at that time. I was like, it was hard for him also to translate because he was not more than 13 years old. And, uh, he was so shy and everything. And I was forced. Uh, forced to learn the, the Swedish language because of that because I, I wanted to work and I just start to know hands, head and uh, 
both names and it was easy because it was similar to English and by time the kids had taught me to speak Swedish at the moment because it was the only way I learned Swedish. Uh, it was my way to learn Swedish. It was, I was with the kids all the time. The kids' language was the easiest to take, like to pick out because the kids have a simple language that you can really learn it much faster than talking with another that talks really fast and talking very advanced Swedish. I dreamed to travel from Gaza and then I made it. I did travel from Gaza and then you think, okay, what do I want to make next? And then I I want to work with parkour. Then I start working with parkour. I never expected that I would be in the biggest theater stage in Sweden. And then I am here in the biggest theater stage in Sweden that's just like people come and watch my story and watch me performing parkour and telling my story to the it's like I never th- thought about it, but just parkour brought that to me. As an extra note, earlier this week, James spoke with Ahmed and Abdullah, and as of a few days ago at least, both of their families were okay. Obviously, this is an ongoing situation, but I just wanted to add that in here, because that's the most up-to-date information we have. Ahmed is still in Sweden, is still doing parkour. You can find him at Matar Gaza on Instagram or his website, matargaza.com. That's M-A-T-A-R. Gaza.com. Abdullah is still in Italy and is studying to become an English teacher. And just last February, Ahmed and Abdullah were able to see each other in person for the first time in quite a while. The documentary that Abdullah is in is called One More Jump. It's about very similar questions on whether it's worth it to stay and fight for your country or try to escape and fulfill your dreams. Thank you once again to Abdullah and Ahmed for talking with us. I'll link their social medias in the show notes below. See you on the other side. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth 
issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Shireen, and I am so happy to be joined by my guest today. I've been so excited to speak to him. I am joined by D.V. Kashi. He is a pro-Palestinian activist from New York and Israel, and there's just a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. So welcome. Pleasure to be here. Great to meet you, Shireen. I want to start with just some background for the audience to just like kind of get to know where the perspective you're speaking from. Can you tell me a little bit about your family history and where you grew up and where your parents are from and all of that? Sure. My parents were both born in Israel. And they, like many Israelis, moved to uh, New York City in the 80s and had uh, myself and my two siblings. And uh, as my grandparents were getting older, uh, to whom we were very close, um, my mom decided to move back to Tel Aviv uh, when I was in 2000, so um, right before the second Intifada, and um, we uh, so so when I was 13, eighth grade, I moved to Tel Aviv for the first time, and you know obviously I was very familiar with it. I visit every summer, um, and you know grew up in 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 our grandparents' house, uh, both of whom were uh, Iraqi uh, Jews who immigrated to. Israel in the early 50s. Um, and so, yeah, so when I moved there uh, in eighth grade, I was uh, completely pretty much uh, a shock in terms of what I was used to in New York. You know, obviously, I uh, had friends from many different walks of life, uh, many different backgrounds here. Uh, I was very used to that, right? I, I didn't grow up in, you know, a very staunch Jewish community. I had Jewish friends, but uh, I didn't solely have Jewish friends. Um, and so that that's what I loved. That's what I embraced. Uh, but when I moved to Israel, uh, it was very jarring. You know, I'd studied in Hebrew for the first time. And, you know, everything that we studied in school 
was uh, pertaining to the Jewish identity. Um, so every kind of history class, you know, you'd study about the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. You'd study about you know ancient Greece and the Jewish people, and it's okay to learn about uh, Jewish identity, uh, but intertwining it with every aspect of the school curriculum uh, and really thinking about uh, the persecution, really kind of hammering home this notion of persecution, um, really kind of understanding how, um, you know, and again, uh, I think it's important to understand uh, your history uh, and history in general. But I think that kind of introducing this notion of persecution as a tactic to re-traumatize people that aren't directly experiencing the trauma, right? Um, so everyone in the world uh, learns about the Holocaust, but did you know that in Israel, Holocaust Remembrance Day isn't on the same day as the rest of the world's Holocaust Remembrance Day? Because they want to own their own kind of version of the Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? And so, you know, when you think about the Holocaust, you think about other Holocaust, uh, other uh, genocides that have happened and Israel's failure to recognize those genocides, like the Armenian genocide, right? Um, and the fact that, you know, many people don't know, but, you know, throughout history, Israel has armed genocidal forces with Israeli-made weapons uh, to, you know, support imperialist uh, motives and colonialist uh, uh, powers around the world. So, you know, even even now with uh, what's happening uh, in Armenia, with the Azerbaijanis, right? Israel is on the wrong side of that uh, uh, equation, right? And so it's never been about uh, standing with the side of the oppressed for Israel. It's never been about, um, you know, uh, ensuring that what happens when they say never again, actually never again, uh, never happens again to anyone around the world, right? Think about their policies, their racist policies around um, um, refugees, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think people don't understand, right? I've I have a very unique perspective because I understand kind of the 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 minds of the colonizers. I can humanize the colonizers. I think there's a dangerous uh, kind of maybe thinking about uh, things from a, a bit of a different angle than than kind of people are used to, and also bringing it back to the events of the last ten days or eleven days at this point. I think you know. I've always kind of looked at and, and identified with the Palestinian struggle, right? And I've always seen it as a human rights struggle, right? And, you know, as such, and as many well-regarded uh, activists and thinkers and intellectuals uh, have always talked about the unification of all the struggles of the oppressed. And that's always always arrived at uh, the identification with this struggle for the Palestinian people. I've also felt, um, you know, by virtue of this self, this imposed identity of, you know, Israeli, um, I've always felt directly responsible for the oppression of the Palestinian people, even though I've never done anything myself um, to champion or perpetuate that oppression. I've always worked against it from a very, very young age. Now, People always ask me, you know, kind of annoying questions like, you know, why do you care so much about the Palestinians when so many people in the world are suffering? And the answer to that question is I care about all suffering, uh, but this is something that the government that supposedly represents me, the, the entity that supposedly represents me is directly perpetrating. And frankly, 
after going to many protests in New York and in Israel itself, I've realized that this is the most important human rights struggle of our generation, for sure, but of modern times, Mm -hmm. because it stands for all of, it's essentially the last beacon of direct colonialism, right? We all know how kind of neocolonialism works. I mean, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Uh, but neocolonialism through, you know, different um, capitalist structures, right? America has been able to uh, perpetrate um, uh, col- uh, neocolonialism without actually having to occupy uh, other people, you know, son- uh, uh, save for Iraq for almost 20 years, but uh, or 15 years or whatever uh, uh, it was, a very long time. Um, but But Israel is directly... And physically occupying another people, and they have been for the last seventy-five years, right? Officially for the last seventy-five years, um, and that's been a constant, right? It's not, hey, you know, here's a country, and let's you know fight, let's continue our our our, our kind of battle in that way. It's been, it's always been. If you if you're a scholar of uh, Israeli history, of Zionist history, you always you you start understanding that. The goal was to take over all of Judea and Samaria, right? And that's kind of how the settler government that uh, Netanyahu has in power uh, has been speaking for years, right? I'm I'm really upset and really kind of frustrated by the way that the Western media has been portraying what's happening over the last 11 days, because even Israeli media, Haaretz, which is an Israeli newspaper, which is a very prominent one, Right isn't portraying it the way that the Western media is portraying it, yeah, right? They're that. criticizing the Netanyahu. There's so many people in Israel that are scared, right? All the leftists are scared. They're being persecuted. They're signal groups doxing uh, friends of mine, people literally fighting for human rights. They're doxing them. Uh, Israel Frey, he's a, a, a orthodox uh, reporter that's that's been staunchly pro-Palestinian uh, and he's a very prominent member of the press. Uh, an angry mob of right-wing extremists uh, um, tried to knock down his door the other day, and, and he had to ex- escape from the back door uh, and run away so they don't, you know, potentially kill him, right? And so these voices are being silenced in Israel. No one is talking about that. Everyone in the West is beating the drums of war. The media is supporting that. We've seen on the, on the kind of a micro but tragic level what happened to that uh, a six-year-old kid that was stabbed to death by someone just because of the anti-Islamic, anti-Palestinian rhetoric that's being perpetrated. And so everyone's kind of losing their shit as all of a sudden everyone's saying the same thing because everyone is being pushed to justify this war. But people are starting to wake up, right? The UN's woken up in certain very, very slowly. People are starting to wake up because they're seeing that genocide is actually being committed and so you can't throw your full weight behind genocide, but they're walking it back too slowly. And the people that I'm disappointed by are people that are supposedly smart, spewing complete nonsense rhetoric about two sides, right? I struggled, right? This is important. I struggled. I know people who were killed in the Hamas attack, personally and intimately know them, right? Uh, you know, my ex-girlfriend's best friend was killed, right? She, we've hung out many, many, many times. She was a very sweet very kind person. Uh, we know an activist who was literally, because people don't understand, and this is for a lot of the uh, kind of pro-Palestinians that have, that, 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 and, and I, I completely empathize and I understand why people believe what they believe, believe me. 
Uh, but this is for a lot of the pro-Palestinians uh, that, you know, immediately called all of them settlers, right? And I think it's important to distinguish because if there's ever going to be a path forward in this mess, we have to offer a new rhetoric that deconstructs the nationalist ideologies, okay? I don't put the Palestinian flag or say free Palestine, which I do, as a nationalist ideology. I say that as a deconstruction of nationalism, as a, as, as, as a call to freedom for all, right? The oppressed as well as the oppressor, right? If you actually read, everyone's quoting, um, everyone's quoting Fanon, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's quoting all these revolutionaries. If you actually read the material that they said, Che Guevara even said, the true revolutionary is guided by deep, with deep feelings of love in their heart. And he said this at the risk of sounding, uh, sounding absurd, he said that. Direct quote, the people perpetuating in Israel, I can say this from a firsthand account, I know very good people that are guided by nationalist and fascist ideologies. However, they've been manipulated, they've been lied to, they've, they're fed propaganda 24-7 through the news. And so the sentiment in Israel right now, and I can tell you this, I'm getting messages from people. They think everyone is trying to kill Jews. That's what they believe. That's what they've been told. They think this is Armageddon for the Jewish people. That's what the media narrative is in Israel. Okay? In spite of the fact that there are many people that are against what's happening, there are many people that directly blame Netanyahu for this, but they're being scared to believe that they're going to be attacked on all fronts and they have to do everything they can to neutralize the threats. Okay? That is, that is the survival kind of that, – that is a fact – does that mean that every single person in Israel is a terrible human being, is evil, as some people say? No, that is not true at all, right? And, 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 and my point is, and what a lot of the revolutionaries said, right, Paulo Freire in, in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed said, in the process of dehumanization, the oppressor dehumanizes himself. Putting that aside, though, I think that, you know, for me, I, I see, I, I, I know people that died. I, I, it was very difficult for me to post in the first two days. I think there were some problematic justifications for the massacre uh, that didn't sit well with me because I'm a humanist. But in the same token, right, I think that I understand the context. I think it behooves us to understand the context, right? There's a really famous quote, I forget who said it, but if you started uh, uh, the clock uh, or started looking uh, at kind of the colonization in America from when the Native Americans started shooting the arrows. Mm-hmm. You'd think that the Native Americans were the aggressors, right? If you started looking at, you know, uh, the colonization of Algeria, uh, um, when, the, Alger- when the, the, the local population started rebelling, you'd think that they were the aggressors, right? Yeah. And that's not to say in the same breath that terrible things happen to amazing people there. Right. What people don't know, and a lot of the pro-Palestinian movement doesn't know, is that many of the people living in the area around Gaza are actually activists, like very anti-Zionist activists. Right. That many of the testimonies of the families of the of, of those activists are saying to stop the genocide. That's not going to bring back their friends, their family members. Those are the people that were a lot of whom were killed in the attacks because that's where they live. They work with, you know, uh, organizations in Gaza, like acknowledge that, right. Understand the complexity, 
saying, hey, you guys are all settlers. That's just dumb. It's not factually true. Their grandparents were, their great-grandparents were, 100%. But now they're generations and generations of people, right? Just like in America, they're generations and generations of people that, that descended. Are they to be held accountable for the actions of their ancestors? Doesn't make any sense. They should be held accountable for actions that they take now, for sure, right? right. Holding your government accountable, you know, thinking about an actual solution to this terrible situation that 100% people should be held accountable for. But to call them settlers as a justification for their deaths is something that I will never do, right? And I don't think it helps the struggle, right? I think it's important to say, and then simultaneously also say, did you guys know that Israel played a very major role in establishing the Hamas? Like, don't be stupid. Open a history book. See what happened, right? Understand. Don't just be quick to call and quick to say both sides. It's not a both sides situation, even though the aggression was terrible. Those are, those two things can be true. Yeah. It's a devastating, tragic event. Right. And I know many great people that were killed in it, but in the same breath, we have to remember what caused it. Yeah. Context is everything. Right. Context is everything. Israel funded the Hamas. Bibi has direct quotes in Israeli newspapers saying we have to fund the Hamas in order for Palestinians never to have a state. He directly said that. How do you guys ignore these statements? They've been very, Bibi has been very clear as to what is going to happen and what he's trying to accomplish. And then on top of that, to compound things, uh, 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 the the settlers uh, in his government right now, Itamar Bengvir and Smotrich, are two settlers. They literally are settlers, like in accordance with the national law, they're considered settlers, okay? Illegal settlers. And they're the second and third most powerful people in Israel, okay? I don't think people understand or know, but those two guys, there's a, there's a famous rabbi, okay, in Jerusalem. He's an extremist, fundamentalist rabbi, Jewish fundamentalist rabbi. What he's been calling for, for a long time, Kana Tzedak is... Uh, Kahana was right. He was a very fascist rabbi that was basically calling for the extermination of all Arabs. And and they're basically, they're called Kahanistim. And that's, it's basically what the left in Israel used to call this government, Memshalash al-Kahanistim means government of Kahanists. Okay. That is what, that's who's running the country. And this rabbi has been calling for in a biblical sense. And we all know when people have an utmost, you know, devotion to religion, that guides them, right? Not our world. Our world does not guide them. The religious texts and the religious leaders are the ones who tell them what is right and what is wrong, right? In religious fundamentalism. And so what this rabbi has been calling for, for years, has been a war to end all wars. Okay? That is what he's been telling them. That is what they've been operating under. Okay? Their allegiances are to him. Not to the Israeli people, like literally to that ideology. And so they're in the government right now. Over the last year, they've been essentially uh, 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 um, adding uh, uh, illegal settlements at a rapid rate, emboldening and empowering um, settlers uh, to commit violence that we haven't seen in many, many years. Levels of violence we haven't seen in many, many years, even before this latest aggression. I'm talking about over the last 12 months. And the biggest, most annoying thing that I hear from Westerners that think they understand, right? They're like, oh, yeah, um, 
we, we really care about Palestinians, but Hamas has to go. Two things to that. One, the fact that there are Palestinians on the West Bank and the pa- Palestinians in Gaza doesn't mean they're not the same people. There are Palestinians in 48 as well. They feel deep feelings of solidarity because they're all oppressed in different ways, right? It's solidarity under this, under this grand Zionist oppression that they experience. And so I think that it's, it's, it's a fallacy that it was an unprovoked attack. Yeah. It's a fallacy, right? It's not the case. The fact that Alexa kept getting uh, bombarded by settlers on purpose, on purpose, I don't put it back. Like they did this to get a, a, a provocation. They've been provoking to get the retaliation for Hamas. They've been doing this for years. This is nothing new, right? Every time Hamas shot rockets over the last five years, it was because Israel uh, was attacking Al-Aqsa, right? Right after Ramadan, if you remember, or yeah. during Ramadan, sorry. Um, and so every time a barrage of rockets came in, right after that, barrage of rockets, because Hamas wanted to show that someone is sticking up for them. But I'm just saying, you have to understand the context. When you're in a blockade, when you're living in a concentration camp, worse than a concentration camp, frankly, right? Every, electricity is controlled. Water is controlled. Food is controlled. You're not able to leave, right? You're not able to freaking leave when you want. You're not able to come when you want. You're not able to – a 60-kilometer strip of land is the most densely populated strip of land in the entire world. Depression – is the highest uh, the highest rates of depression? I think the highest rates of, of child suicide are in Gaza. Okay, when you're living under those conditions, I have no idea how you're. Sp- like, I, I don't. I have no idea what that would feel like. So how can I judge anyone? Uh, any response to that, right? In the same breath, I can also say it's a tragic thing that innocent people died, and they're innocent people. And I think it's important to hold that complexity also for the Palestinian cause. I think it's important to not lose sight of our humanity in criticizing the grave injustices that Israel has committed and putting the blame squarely on Israel's shoulders that Hamas exists. Yeah, I think that's something squarely. that I, uh, I keep coming back to is whenever someone is just all about condemning Hamas, which is like, yes, as you mentioned, like uh, innocent people shouldn't have died. But I blame all the violence that's happening in Israel on Israel. Like it's not... You, you, yeah, you can't just start like at a slave revolt yeah. as the like, beginning of history of slavery. It's like, no, actually, exactly. they did that for a reason and they had no other choice. And I mean, for Palestinians, I think like what's the, the biggest context that's missing is like they've tried everything. It's not mm-hmm. their first choice to to kill people that didn't deserve it. It's mm-hmm. I, I think I think that's what's been really annoying with the. The people that have chosen to, spoke, to speak out that have never spoken out before, they are so narrow in their view of this that it's so damaging because they have so many followers or they're talking about the wrong mm-hmm. things. And all of those mm-hmm. things like kind of perpetuate a really dangerous environment where like a six-year-old kid can get stabbed to death or I don't know. I agree with everything you said. And I really appreciate you saying all those things. Um, before I forget, we're going to take our first break. So hmm. don't go anywhere. And we're back. Something you mentioned early on that I have been thinking about and getting re- getting really angry about is why people are surprised or like unexpecting you to speak out about Palestinians if you are not a Palestinian. I am not a Palestinian. I'm Syrian. 
And I am extremely vocal about the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian. I've always been 100% free Palestine till I die. And it's almost like surprising to people. Like, why are you so worked up? Like, why aren't you so worked up? Like that, that's what really gets me is your humanity and care. It shouldn't be contingent on your identity if you actually mm-hmm. give a shit. Um, and I think that's what I really want to like relate to people is this is not the Palestinians struggle solely for themselves. Like this is a struggle for all. Like if this genocide obliterates the Palestinian people, that's on humanity's shoulders. That's not like that is so indicative of how depraved humans have become. It's just so upsetting. It's just a complete obliteration. There has been videos of settlers saying they want to flatten the whole thing, make it a parking lot. Uh, I mean, I don't even have to tell you what like actual media and like politicians have been saying because it's like atrocious. But I think that's what I want to relate to people is like, if you're not, if you don't care, examine that because that is troubling to me. If you don't care about actual genocide and maybe that word has been used too much to like make people give a shit, but it really makes me question people's humanity when they are able to kind of just like shrug it off and continue about their day. I've been practicing being hopeful. I think it's really important, especially in times like these, to be hopeful. Because without hope, and it sounds cheesy, but it's true, we're not empowered, right? We're not able to act. And I think what's exciting, what's, what's, I guess, heartening to me, is actually the people's response Mm -hmm. to what's happening. Yes, there are many influencers and celebrities that posted the wrong thing. I'm also seeing many that posted the right thing. Yeah. I'm also seeing many people that I'm surprised by. I'm seeing many people that I wasn't surprised by posting the wrong thing. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Frankly. <laughs> um, but I'm also seeing many people, white people, um, you know, black people, right? Like people of all kinds that are disconnected, you know, from an identity perspective to the Palestinian people doing so much showing up. I went to the, I was, I I saw images from the protest in uh, uh, the other day and there, and I'm not talking about the Jewish protest, which was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. What JVP did uh, with, if not now in front of Chuck Schumer's house was yeah, incredible. Really right? That's that's solidarity. Yeah. That's tr- that's that's real. Right. That's 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 humanity. Right. That's what humanity should be. Um, that's real solidarity. I'm talking about the protests, though, that, that was Palestinian led in Midtown. And I saw tons of Jews there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the Satmar anti-Zionist, you know, Hasidic Jews. Those are great. Right. And they're they're helpful. I'm talking about like regular, regular ass Jews. Right. Like me. Right. Like people with like. Not even wearing yarmulkes, like people with, you know, small yarmulkes that aren't like, you know, Hasidic or anything, holding up signs to help liberate the Palestinian people. In spite of the Hamas, in spite of everything that happened, they showed up. They were not scared. A Palestinian flag doesn't scare them, right? It shouldn't scare Um, anybody. (laughs) It shouldn't. It shouldn't. But again, I want to be, I want to, I want to maintain my, uh, my, um, um, I guess view, I want to maintain the view of objectivity. Yeah. I think again, you know, devil's advocate. I think when, when 
And again, this is not not me blaming, right? It's more so offering kind of a, a perspective to to question um, how to how to move forward. Um, when people, Israelis, Jews, whoever, right, are indoctrinated to believe that um, Palestine means no place for me, okay. And then you couple that with the anger, anguish that the oppressed people are feeling and saying, yeah, fuck, fuck that. Like, we, we don't want you here, right? Like, you, you look what you're doing to us. I think that they view the Palestinian flag as a replacement of, you know, the flag of Israel, which many people actually kind of, not many people, some people view it that way. And I think that the way I see it and the way many people I know see it, it's a flag that represents liberation from oppression. Liberation of the Palestinian people who are being actively oppressed uh, by Zionism, right? An ideology, right? You know, perpetuated and executed by people, but it's still an ideology. Also, just like, because this always comes up, but... Mm -hmm. Being anti-Zionist has nothing to do with being anti-Semitic. Of and course. I think they always get conflated. And that's on purpose to make people yeah. afraid to speak up about Israel. I can only imagine how brainwashed Zionism becomes to like the whole, like the, the education and everything. Like, is that something you experience like firsthand? Yeah, 100%. I think what, what we've seen over the last decade, right? The fact that Netanyahu has been in power for over 20 years that's that's like dictatorship level yeah. stuff and people in america are like oh yeah the west you know at least there, there is a semblance of you know power to the people in the west a semblance of it right we're seeing how much the media is in cahoots with you know power against the people right now which is very very scary and everyone should be up in arms no matter where your your, your feelings lie um but there is, you know, we, there's a new president, you know, every four years of a president is termed, right? You can't be, you can't be a president for more than two terms, right? These are real things, right? These are real protections. Uh, you have three different uh, uh, branches of government, right? You have local level, lo- local government. You have so many different checks and balances that are, you know, corrupted and co-opted in certain ways, you know, through lobbyists uh, um, and, and, you know, corporate interests, et cetera. I'm aware, but at least you have that system in Israel, that system doesn't exist. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's no constitution. Uh, and a prime minister can't be termed. And so now Bibi Netanyahu has been in power and figured out how to survive attempts on his throne many times over through building coalitions with right-wing extremists, which frankly are against his interests. Like he wanted to kind of perpetuate status quo and just kind of be in power. Like this is kind of made it difficult for him to just be the guy who kind of, you know, makes it, makes yeah. everything okay for Israelis, right? Um, now Israelis are scared shitless. Um, and so, but, but putting that aside and, and going back to your point, the Nakba was never even discussed until recent history. Like it was not, like no one even knew what that word means, Right. We celebrated it as Yom Ha'atzmaut, Independence Day. So the Israeli Independence Day is the Palestinians' Nakba, which means That's the great terrible. tragedy for, yeah. for those who don't know. Um, the catastrophe is what they call it. The catastrophe, yes. Um, 
And so, but, but what's interesting and, and very sad is that in recent years, because of the world, actually, and when Israelis tell you, you don't know what you're talking about, don't comment on things you don't talk about, uh, that you don't know about, you most likely, if you've done any, any, literally any, if you read one book on Palestine, if you read On Palestine by Noam Chomsky and, and Ilan Pape, like, you know more than Israelis know about their own situation. And I, I say that wholeheartedly because I know what they study, right? They, they omit large swaths of information in order to form the psyche through the narrative that they perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but because of recent external and global pressure, because of the fact that the world's, the new generation of young people have educated themselves on Palestine, you know, catalyzed, a lot of them catalyzed by the social justice movement, right? The Angela Davises, the Chomskys of the world, who always, since the 60s, have been talking about black liberation isn't complete without the liberation of the Palestinians, unifying struggles. They know more about history of Israel and Palestine than Israelis do, okay? I've always been super impressed, not like, not to say that people are dumb, I actually think people are very smart, right? If, if they're willing to look. Um, but every Palestinian friend of mine, every single one, knows so much about Zionism and Zionist history, right? They're scholars of Zionist history, right? But Israel has no idea about Palestinians and Palestinian history. That's just, I think it's really unsettling because, I mean, for those who don't know, the catastrophe was like... Mass displacement. Like the mass expulsion of like 750,000 Palestinians, ethnic cleansing, massacres, extreme, like just a disgusting show of... uh, forcing someone to leave their land and taking it over. Uh, it was uh, atrocious. And her, and I I think the fact that they can't even learn about power or like learn deeply about Palestine or Palestinians, it's like another way of ethnic cleansing and like forgetting they even exist. And I think that's exactly. very unsettling because it's, you can't just forget. I mean, at the same time, they say like history is written by the people that are in power, right? Or the people mm-hmm. that are like win the war, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And they're very capable of convincing a big amount of people that like how like that they were never here. I think being hopeful is a practice and I've definitely fallen into, you know, bouts of, of depression and, and, and helplessness and hopelessness also. Um, I think we all do, but I think it behooves us to practice hopefulness, especially in times like these. Um, because without it, we don't have the power to liberate the oppressed, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, I mean, it, like, like you said, it, it's, it's, I, I think it's it also important. I keep saying the Palestinian struggle is the people's movement mm-hmm. all over the world, right? And we're seeing that. It's not me. I'm nobody. But, but we're seeing that people understand that, right? Like I said, people are smart, right? You don't have to go to, you know, an Ivy League school to, to, to be intelligent, right? Paulo Freire talked about banking and intelligence, right? When you just consume information from a teacher perpetuating the, um, perpetuating the injustices and, and maintaining the system of oppression, right? You can be as educated as you want in that form of education and not understand the world and understand the inequalities around you. Right. 
But if you feel those inequalities, if you have that empathy, if you're able to expand your consciousness a little bit to, to, to also include those that you may not identify with or as or, um, you know, that, that maybe are not tangible, their experience is not as tangible to you, then, then you, you, you're able to understand situations pretty clearly and easily. And I think the world is showing up because they understand that, right? Sure, the air world is showing up and that's incredible, right? Uh, because they understand, right? This is like what I always say is Palestine is the last kind of, like I said earlier, the last direct colonialist project that exists in the world. Direct, right? Um, in terms of uh, direct and active, how about that? Mm -hmm. uh, colonialist project that exists in the world. And the Arab world, you know, if you read Edward Said and Orientalism, you understand how the West basically uh, created and othered kind of the Arab world in order to create that separation and division, in order to create, you know, uh, a world uh, uh, that serves self-interest, individualism versus kind of communitarianism um, and, and, and uh, of, of, of the kind of East. Um, and so when, when you think about it in, in that context, you start understanding that, you know, this is, in, this is a struggle against kind of Western imperialism, right? This is a struggle to free all oppressed people. Um, because that's what, that's what Zionism in Israel currently stands for. And everyone who perpetuates it and, and people that talk about intersectionality and anti-racism and all of that, and they still say, and they still don't understand that this is literally an, a real time manifestation of the shit that they've been reading in history books. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're seeing it and it's jarring and resistance is fucking jarring. Right. Like it, it was jarring to me. I could barely watch it. I had people crying. I'd, you know, and this is, I didn't say this earlier, but I had, you know, family members that didn't want to speak to me and like, you know, people cursing at me and like friends from, you know, middle school sending me hate messages. My mom is receiving death threats. Wow. Right. Like this is real shit. Right. And so like, this isn't like an abstract, like, and, and so, you know, that's what, that's what people don't necessarily understand when they just approach it academically. And I, I, I commend them. And I think it's important to like, understand the, the intellectual context of things like I, i've done the work i've read the books but i think it's also important to kind of take a step back and contextualize things all around right and and, and only through that contextualization can we rehumanize um you know both the the oppressed and the oppressor in order to actually have a path forward that's inclusive of all that doesn't that doesn't pit people against each other right? Yeah. Jews lived on that land for many years before Zionism. If you're a they scholar peacefully, I want to say, like everyone lived just fine before yeah. the introduction of Zionism, which is a very modern, very fascist ideology. Not only Zionism though, right? Like think about Sykes-Picot, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, the British French uh, treaty that was signed in 1920 uh, that sliced up the Arab world um, according to their whim didn't take into account any uh, demographic, any ethnic ge uh, uh, geographic relations, didn't take into account any, any of that. And that is what set the tone for a lot of what we're seeing in the Arab world today, right? Compounded by the introduction of a European ideology into the, into the region that served European interests is what, is what we're seeing to this very day. And the Palestinians bear the biggest brunt of it 
I wouldn't say like I would say like in recent years, there's tragedies all around uh, uh, due to uh, Western imperialism and Western intervention. Right. I, I take that back. Right. Like I don't want to compare tragedies. Um, but but the tragedy of the Palestinian people, there, there's no one really advocating on their behalf. Yeah. I was going to add a wrinkle that probably ninety nine point nine percent of the population doesn't know, uh, including Palestinians and, and Arabs, um, because it was actively erased. But up until Sykes-Picot. Up until Western imperialism, Arab Jews were an integral part of Arabic culture. Okay. In Iraq, my grandparents from Iraq, right? Iraq wasn't, the Iraqi Jews were not Zionists. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews in Iraq that lived there since Babylonian times, right? There are many, you know, many empires that came through the Arab world, right? So displaced, replaced, etc. But they, they were there for hundreds of years at the minimum. Um, some would say some of them were actually not uh, there due to the Spanish Inquisition, right? Uh, but actually were there before and never left, basically. Um, and so, you know, they were musicians, you know, they played with Kusum, right? Like they were, they were statesmen, they were, they were very integral part of the culture, right? And, and the, the Arab, the, I have many Arab friends that do know this and they, they're like, yeah, like I, this is the biggest, it's the biggest tra- one of the biggest tragedies is kind of the betrayal of the Arab Jew. Right. And they understand, right, like when it, it, at this point in time, and, and this is not only Iraq, this was Egypt and, you know, Yemen and Morocco, there's a huge Jewish community, yeah. right? Like these, these people live there. They're, they're, Nazism is not an Arabic concept. They're yeah. trying to paint Arabs as Nazis. Even growing up, I would go to Syria a lot. And my grandfather would like, he would only get bread at the Jewish bakery. Like he would take the walk and go there. And it was normal. No one cares. Like, no one gives a shit, really, what your religion is in those communities. And I think, I mean, this is obvious for people that are reading about all of this, but the media and Zionism and Israel, they're purposely conflating what's happening with religion Mm -hmm. to make it more complicated Mm -hmm. for people, to make it this, like, ancient battle of all time. When it's not about any kind of Muslim versus Jewish versus Arab versus whatever. It's it's really so simple to the point where it's Mm -hmm. kind of silly. And I think they make it so Mm -hmm. complicated for people to be scared to talk about it. They're they're not informed enough. They don't know about religion. They don't know about the history. You don't have to know about any of that to know that Mm -hmm. oppression is wrong and genocide is wrong. Mm -hmm. 100%. And every every um, every resistance movement in history was considered a terrorist yes. movement yeah. in modern times, right? Even Israeli militias, right? You had the Lehi, the Etzel, and the Haganah. Okay, they were considered terrorist organizations because they would attack civilian British and they would attack civilian targets during the British Mandate. Yep. Sound that's familiar? Important. No, I mean that's very you know important those, to bring up. <laughs> no, but you know what those you know those three militias became? The IDF. The IDF. Exactly. The three militias that formed the, that formed the IDF once Israel was given statehood were considered terrorist organizations. The IRA, a terrorist organization, right? Nelson mm-hmm. Mandela was on the US terrorist watch list until 2008. These are real things, these are all facts. But I'm saying even even if you're thinking about it from the perspective of attacking civilians, okay? Wrong, in my opinion. But when you don't have, if you look at, you look, actually, here, another, another fact, right? Look at what the Hezbollah is doing, mm-hmm. okay? They were, they were considered a terrorist organization. They're armed to the teeth. Israel's scared shitless of the, the Hezbollah threat. I'm hearing it from people on the ground, right? 
they're attacking military targets. They're showing the world that they can because they can. They used to not be able to. Now they can, so they are. When a population is, is oppressed, suppressed to the level that the Gazans are, what, what military? Do they, have, do they have F-16 fighter jets that they can go and bomb, I don't know, the, the Kiryat? Did you guys know that the biggest military base in Israel is in the middle of Tel Aviv? Yeah, in a residential area, like very in a residential populated. area. Yeah. So what if what if what if the Gazans had F sixteen fighter? What if Hamas had F sixteen fighters? They wouldn't want to bomb that. Yeah. Like people are, are people that dense, like uh, that they don't understand how this thing works and what what oppression looks like, right? Uh, a lot of my Palestinian friends always say the world wants us to be the perfect victims. Yeah. And in a lot of, in a lot of senses, the burden is always on the victim, right? Mm-hmm. In these oppressive scenarios. So I always tell them, guys, like, we have to be smart. We have to make sure that, you know, again, I, I, I like, it's, it's trauma that I can't, you know, I, I'm, I feel in my bones, but, but it's not, it's not directly happening to me. And, and, and so I can't, I'm not, it's not from a place of judgment. It's from a pragmatic perspective. We have to understand that that's the trap that they're setting for us. The Hamas enacted, the Hamas did exactly what the right-wing government wanted them to do in order to justify the plan that they had all along. I'm not going to go so far as to start perpetuating conspiracy theories because it's not my place. Um, so I'm not going to say that they planned this and it was you know, an inside job. I'm not going to say that. Um, but what I will say is it served the interests of the right-wing government. Yeah. And, and the one thing I wanted to re- re- say, because I keep going off on tangents and I apologize. No, you're fine. But to your point about the Nakba, I said, in the last 10 years, it's pretty crazy to see the narrative shift. Israel has so, been so emboldened. They feel so invincible because of the international support that they have. Now they acknowledge the Nakba. Now they acknowledge the Nakba. But you know how they acknowledge it? They say, yeah, the Nakba happened. Let's do a second one. Yep. Right? And so now, they're, now all of a sudden the Nakba existed, right? Mm-hmm. And they're basically saying... Hey, let's do a second one. All the like, all the right wing gover- uh, uh, government officials are saying the second Nakba. Let's do it now. Let's let's, and that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I that's mean, what they're trying to do in Gaza. They're, it feels like the first one never wanted. ended. It feels like the first one just never uh, ended, right? That, that I always I always say that I agree. Yeah, but I'm saying like I'm talking about mass expulsion right now. They're trying to they're trying under international under everyone's noses to uh, utilize genocide and ethnic cleansing to displace millions of Palestinians from Gaza and God knows I don't they don't have a they don't this was like a biblical idea right like the Judea and Samaria this is not like a there's no, I don't, there's no like specific plans that people had like this is a biblical fervent ideological idea they don't freaking know what they're doing they they don't want to go they, they, they don't want to go to war with Iran they're scared of the Hezbollah like these are real things these are real threats like Israel hasn't fought a real opponent since uh, the 70s and the Yom Kippur War. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, this showed how vulnerable they are. And they're scared. I'm telling you, like, I know the sentiment on the ground. Like, people are scared out of their minds. They don't think, they're not very confident in in Israel's military, right? Like, that's why they're bombing the shit. And, like, that's why they haven't invaded. They said they're going to invade. Bibi's talking this big game. They haven't done it yet. Because they're scared. To remember also is that the IDF That's all <laughs> does not actually act in the best interests of the civilians. If anything, like no. there was like a report from an Israeli woman that who survived the 
the massacre at the music festival that said mm -hmm. a lot of them were shot by like their own forces. It yeah. was like indiscriminate yeah. shooting. The biggest casualties for, for Israeli soldiers up until this, this was, was friendly fire. Yeah. Every, like, that's, that's, like, that's, I mean, I just so think that's so absurd. important to remember because it's, uh, they're framed as this very, like ideal warrior bullshit mm -hmm. and it's so far from the truth and that's what i'm saying they're 18 year old kids yeah these aren't like u.s like marines that are career assassins like have you ever seen a u.s marine next to an israeli soldier <laughs> no i'm serious like like no, I'm, i know like, Texas i mean it's, Rangers, very, it's become a trend they're... to be a soldier if anything it's like very like you see these like young people almost like a, yeah exactly it's like a very um cool thing to do uh because there was really never a cool. threat though israel yeah. israel has been you, you've grown up in israel believing that you're the most powerful entity and you can do whatever you want whenever you want right yeah. and and that notion has been shaken to its core and if you're part of the propaganda machine if you if you're caught in the propaganda machine that is kind of zionist israeli ideology you're basically now your whole world has crumbled beneath you mm -hmm. right you're completely in survival mode everyone's posting everyone's like you have to eradicate Hamas. They're not even eradicating Hamas. What are they doing? They're just emboldening Hamas. Like this happens all the time. It's just happening on a much bigger scale right now. Every like any Hamas leader that the thing I was basically looking for like a big like a major Hamas leadership you know attack and and once they're able to to neutralize you know in their words uh, uh, numerous uh, high ranking officials I think they'll declare victory even though they they they're not going to be victorious. They're not going to bring back the fourteen hundred. Uh, I mean, they're also going killed. to kill the hostages at this rate. You know what I mean? Like, they're not like... They've already killed more than 22. Yeah, that, that's... How much do you actually care about your civilians and the hostage, like the foreign hostages either? Like, it's... You're... But... but I don't know. They're just clearly showing their ass, in my opinion. I, I want to I have a clear message, though, to um, kind of people that are on the fence in the West that are being fed propaganda through... Uh, Western media outlets that is quite clear at this point, and some of them recognize this, and that's why they come to my page and they're like, "Oh, you know, thank you. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know." Um, in Israel, there are many people, not not even ideologically, that want to bring the hostages back and don't understand why Israel is doing what it's doing mm -hmm. before, and and not even talking to them about the hostages. Yeah, I've seen videos of them like pleading, being like, "Please, pleading. just yeah." And these, I'm not talking about left-wing activists. I'm talking yeah. about like average Israelis, right? Netanyahu has failed the Israeli people. Th that attack, the fact that, and again, this I don't know if people know this, right? People who know, know, but maybe some, some don't. That attack was a complete military failure on behalf of Israel. Mm -hmm. And that happened because over the last six to nine months since the right-wing government took place, uh, took, uh, took power, They've been using the IDF to support, empower, embolden, and protect settlers in the West Bank. And that's why settler attacks have increased. That's why settlements have increased. That's why there are more settlers than ever before. And what they were doing on that very day, people don't already know, I hope they do, but if they don't already know, the IDF was in the West Bank on Sukkot, which is a Jewish holiday, and they were protecting settlers uh, in building a sukkah, that structure that, that people sit in, in the middle of Hawara, a Palestinian village, 
and they were, they were protecting them and, and chaperoning them so that they can break into a Palestinian village to build a sukkah in order to antagonize Palestinians. That's Say what you may about anything else. The fact that that is the priority of the government, you know, you're doing the oppression, you're already committing the oppression, mm-hmm. you're already subjugating the, the Palestinian people. You know that Hamas is, is Hamas. You're going to remove the security forces from the border mm-hmm. to embolden and empower settlers instead? Yeah, it's shameful. It doesn't make any sense. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's why the most unsettling things I've seen coming out of Israel are those right-wing protests where they're like death to Arabs and whatever, or like they're attacking people and the IDF is like either helping them or standing by. If you're on um, the fence about this still, you are literally for genocide. Those are the two differences. Yep. It's either yep. you're for genocide or you're against genocide. And if you're considering the options, examine yourself. That's not, that's not right. I was just sent this tweet. Apparently, yesterday, uh, the Twitter for Israeli Prime Minister at Israel PM said, this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. Are you fucking kidding me? That's like Nazi Hitler shit. Are you... There are so many lives that have already been lost, and the ones that have not been lost are never going to recover. They've lost so much other than their life. There are so many terrifying and horrific videos that I've seen that no one should have to go through. And not only are they going through it, they're getting funded and encouraged by most of the world. I cannot accept that. I, I, hmm, sorry, I don't want to cry, but I might. (laughs) I mean, it's, that's where we're at at this point. No, but I, I appreciate you being here to get through to people who might still be considering what's happening as a both sides thing or a justification for anything when they see tweets like that or when they see justification for killing all the people because they're all barbarians or whatever it is. I urge you, I urge you to seek out Palestinian sources of news, actually see what's happening in Gaza, listen to people who are not advertising anything to you and it's like pleading for their lives. Um, I I just this can't be how we end up as a people. I it's I think very very sad. It's extremely un like no words to describe how devastating. And I think if you are listening and you are wondering what to do, there are places you can donate to. I can put some links in the description of sources that I trust, um, of people to follow and all that stuff. So you can look at the description for that. Um, I think what's very important that people maybe aren't taking too seriously is how important social media and like spreading awareness has been because the only reason the resistance has come this far is because of that, because more people are aware about what's going on and people aren't accepting that Israel is doing this. So Mm -hmm. I think we just can't stop. Like as much as they want the world to forget that Palestinians were even there, we cannot forget Palestinians. And I'm not. I'm not going to stop talking about it, and nope. you shouldn't either. Here, this is this is why I'm speaking out. I just got a message from Palestinian friends. You are our voice now. We're not allowed to spit out a lip. They are arresting anyone who speaks or shares the truth. Please, I beg you, don't give up on our people in Gaza. We need your voice to stop the genocide. Thousands of lives have already been taken. We can't stand this anymore. Please listen to that, everybody. 
please. It's very hard to fathom and and internalize what's happening. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And we're privileged enough to think about it that deeply. People in Gaza, Palestinians, they don't have the luxury of no of anything other than their no. nightmare of a reality. No. Um I I, I want to add Shereen, just Yeah, yeah. Because I think that the biggest kind of pushback that we keep hearing is Hamas this, Hamas that. Yes, please, yeah. And I think that, again, remembering what we kind of mentioned earlier in the call, how liberation movements for occupied peoples have always been deemed uh, terrorist organizations and, you know, even targeted civilians, right? So not only, like, by the definition of terrorist organizations are terrorist organizations. So even if that's what we believe, and, and let's just say that that's, you know, we, we accept and agree that that's what Hamas is. Um, I think it's important to understand that terrorist organizations have become political organizations time and time again. And I think that it's also important to understand historically the Hamas uh, as, a, as an entity, again, I remind you, was created and partially created and funded by the state of Israel, emboldened by the state of Israel, because I want to be very clear, up until the 90s, right, Oslo Accords, the peace process, people say, oh, the Palestinians didn't want peace. To your point earlier, the Palestinians were willing to take mm-hmm. almost anything at that point. Arafat, who was considered a terrorist before he became a statesman, right, was on the table with Rabin, had a, uh, an agreement in place, okay, and then people don't know. If you're not a scholar and you don't know, you should know. Baruch Goldstein, an Israeli terrorist, came in to a mosque. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in Hebron. I don't remember exactly. And he killed more than 30 people during prayer. Just indiscriminately shot innocent people in a mosque. So the biggest, one of the biggest tragedies, right? And then he was, he was um, not only... Did they, the response, you know, uh, Rabin's response to that was, it was locking down Hebron, the Palestinians in Hebron. So, because he was fearful of what the Palestinians would do in retaliation. The immediate response by Rabin was locking down the people of Hebron, okay, instead of going and doing something about the settlers that committed the crime or that emboldened the person committing the crime. That's number one. Number two, um, that sparked the retaliation because when people don't have justice, they take justice in their own hands. So that sparked this series of uh, uh, attacks in Israel, right? Devastating attacks in Israel. But it was that that did that, and it was his. He could have he could have handled that differently, but he didn't, right? And 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 that was what sparked the response. Then, in turn, okay, again, who? Putting that aside, right? And and sorry, f- t- little tidbit. His uh, grave, mm-hmm. Baruch Goldstein's grave, is guarded by the IDF as some and many, many, many consider him a national hero. Yeah, I've seen photos of people like crying at his grave, like it's yes. he's saved their family yes. or something. When he's not just yes. when he literally just like went to a mosque with a gun yes. and shot. 30 people who were fucking praying. Yes. And that's what people people are idolizing. Exactly. It's rotten to its core is my point. This is what you're supporting when you support 
the state of Israel. Okay, this is part of part of this is part of what you're supporting. Now, taking a second step, Rabin was assassinated by a Jewish Israeli, not by a Palestinian. Even in spite of everything, the peace process was still going on because the, the, they did everything to foil it, right? And then they assassinated the Israeli prime minister. And ever since then, right, then you had uh, Ariel Sharon uh, and, and whatever uh, that tried to continue a peace process in you know, some capacity. But ever since then, for the last 23 years, no one has been talking about a peace process. They blamed, they blamed the Palestinians for every act of resistance. They don't listen. They believe that they, they talk uh, the way that um, politicians discuss the Palestinian um, kind of oppression is uh, managing the occupation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Managing the occupation. No one's talking about peace. Not left, left, pseudo-left, whatever you want to call it. Not liberal Zionist left or center or right. No one is talking about peace. No one is talking about any semblance of peace. I find it very particular, right? And this is my, this is why I'm saying we live in the twilight zone (laughs) that in Donald Trump's four years in office. Okay. He, his, he had Kushner that, that say what all the bad things, right. About his, about his behavior. He was trying to, through normalization deals with the Arab world, trying to get a deal for the Palestinian people, albeit the most absurd sort of deal if you ever read what what the abraham accords actually entailed right like weird like highways and weird right like not a deal that anyone should have accepted but putting that aside he was talking about it there was discussion there was palestinian like the word palestinian was being said by the office of the president in the last four years that biden was in office no one said anything no one did anything to advance peace no one even brought a bogus deal like Jared Kushner to the table. I don't make it make sense. I don't understand. They basically bought into the Zionist idea that we can just live, continue living while millions of people are being oppressed and occupied. This is the Democratic Party, and that's why we see the media now the way it is, because they're, they're, they're controlling the media narrative too, right? So open your eyes. See it for what it is, right? Don't get cloud. Don't let your judgment get clouded by this two side BS aspect. Hold space for the killing of innocent civilians, including the killing of Israeli innocent civilians, while simultaneously understanding that this is all because of the aggression of colonialism and specifically the perpetuation of the Zionist project as a colonialist, nationalist. Uh, ethno state, and 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 that is what I ask of you guys to do, right? Um, yeah. Thank you for that. That's, I think, a great place to end. Uh, thank you again for joining me. You are just uh, as your Palestinian friends said in that message. Uh, your voice is really critical because people will more likely listen to you than to a Palestinian. So uh, I very much thank you for your activism. Um, and I don't know, it's, we're not living in a just world. And so we nope. just have to stick together. I also want to mention the other reason why social media is so important is like one, there's a, there's a reason they cut electricity to Gaza. They don't want anything coming mm-hmm. out of there. They want them to die in a blackout. And two, 
They are literally arresting people for following Palestinian accounts now. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's not totalitarianism, like, what the fuck is? I don't... Well, anyway, so... Uh, that's it for today. I can't... I don't think I can do any more. <laughs> but... Again, I'll put some sources in the description to donate to, to keep raising awareness. If you have people in your circles that are still hesitant about having a stance on this, like, have conversations. It shouldn't be complicated. It really shouldn't be, because it's not. And that's all, that's all I have. So, thanks, everybody. Thank you for having me. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. Um, and speaking of falling apart, when we're when we're talking about the crumbles, uh, the the slow and sometimes rapid erosion of institutions in this country, um, nothing is quite as relevant as the tech industry. Um, I'm Robert Evans. Obviously, on the uh, line with me is Garrison Davis, and we also have someone new with us today uh, who's going to be talking uh, talking tech and particularly talking about the NFT crash and some of what that has to tell us about both how the tech industry functions now and about how kind of our economies of hype uh, uh, contribute to a, a state of well, what, what, what Ed Zitron, who is our guest here, tends to call the rot economy. Ed, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'll just hand it over to you at this point. So you may remember two years ago where kind of ghoulish half-wit libertarians emphatically told you that NFTs, non-fungible tokens, would change everything. That people wanted to own a unique digital object, and indeed, that the said uniqueness of said object, say a picture of an ape or an animated gif of a sports moment, mm-hmm. would be worth millions. The hype yeah. was insane. Justin Bieber paid $1.3 million for a bored ape, which is one of 10,000 procedurally generated pictures of a monkey. And celebrities like Mila Kunis and Lindsay Lohan would fund and create their own NFT projects. In fact, multiple celebrities raised millions of dollars for these kind of noxious little creations. Their logic entirely hinged upon the idea that something being a one of a kind somehow made it valuable. And that a digital token connected to a picture or a video was the same as, say, a rare baseball card or a comic book. Or the sense that owning part of a digital entity like a game was somehow valuable. I personally do not think owning a sword from World of Warcraft, a unique one, means anything. I do not think that's meaningful in any way. But listen, got a bit of advice for anyone listening. When anyone tells you to ignore your eyes and your ears, to dull a voice in your head that says, Huh, that sounds really goddamn stupid. Or to, of course, put a bunch of money into an unproven asset, you should always try and work out how they're going to get paid in the end. But nevertheless, it's important to know the fundamentals of this crap. This noxious industry. Now, of course we're talking about cryptocurrency, so these are tokens on a decentralized blockchain. In this case, a non-fungible token what's known as an NFT, is a unique digital identifier on a blockchain like Ethereum or Polygon, one that cannot be copied, substituted, or divided like a regular token. Ownership, in this case, who owns the NFT, is based on whoever owns the wallet that said that the NFT in question is actually stored, and meaning that if someone tricks you into sending your board ape to somebody else, they technically own it. These NFTs of images, say the board ape yacht club, Pudgy penguins, what have you, are connected to images. So, by which I mean you are quite literally buying a JPEG. You are buying a tokenized JPEG. These images are kept on something called the Interplanetary File System, IPFS. And you have an IPFS address that attached to each token. What's important to know about this is this is another decentralized project where there's no real proof that your IPFS address isn't going to disappear in 10 years. So you could end up buying one of these tokens and be left with bugger all. Like I said, you're effectively buying a very expensive JPEG that may or may not be an image of something in 10, 15, 20 years, or even five years. 
so like I used to buy a whole bunch of digital games for my Nintendo Wii system. Right. And th these were not physical games. And now I cannot re-download any of these things, even though I bought them because the digital system is just Nintendo is no longer supporting it. Is, is this, is this kind <clears> of like a similar mechanism here in terms of there's like all this necessary internet infrastructure to like host these digital assets, but we, we don't actually control that infrastructure. Right. So it's, it's, it's different than holding like, you know, uh, a disc or in the case of an NFT, like an actual physical picture of a monkey. <laughs> What's really funny is the example you just gave is one of the few examples of where NFTs could actually be useful. Huh? Digital games right now are in this position where, like you said, and you find this a lot with streaming products as well, where you can buy something, you buy a, a video game, you buy a movie and you own it on Apple TV. Apple yeah. has complete power to pull that down. If indeed there was a non-fungible token that contained the video in question, that might be quite useful. That might be really useful, in fact. Unlike NFTs in general, which are not useful at all, you are just <laughs> buying a JPEG that leads to an image and owning this JPEG, this NFT, might get you inside a Discord, perhaps, a special Discord of like-minded people who have spent a lot of money on something very silly. Sounds sounds like a party. It's so good. And it's it was really something. These things have been around since at least 2014. I think uh, CryptoKitties was one of the original ones. You could breed horrible looking cats. Oh, no. These horrible cats have sex and create new oh, horrible looking cats. Well, you didn't get to see the sex. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Which to, sure. Which to me Wait, was whoa. the only reason I invested. Like, but, I... I let me Google Crypto Kitty Rule 34. I'm sure I'll find something. <laughs> I'm sure that there is a Crypto Kitty hentai. But mm -hmm. now make, make sure to put Reddit in the uh, in the search <laughs> phrase there. You gotta you're gonna get better results that way. Will I get in trouble for sending these results in the group chat? Will people get mad? I I feel nothing anymore. Yeah. Um honestly, there's not as much as I thought there would be. I'm kind of disappointed. World is a vampire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the thing about this is the gold rush, this huge multi-billion dollar NFT industry that kind of popped and dropped in the last couple of years, was something created by a kind of perfect storm of post-lockdown financial hysteria. You saw it with like AMC and GameStop yeah. stocks. You saw it with crypto in general. And it was the sense that you were getting in early on something. And it kind of resembled in a funky way, like Beanie Babies, baseball cards, but also with the kind of stench of the fine art industry. But I also think that during the pandemic, and I'll get to a little more of this later, people really got this defined sense of how unfair everything is, how you can't just go to college anymore. You can't just work really hard and get a mortgage. You have to effectively find a way to cheat. And this seemed like a cheat they had got in on early. The problem is they didn't. And I'll kind of get into that later. But another part of it, the part that really stank to me, was that they were selling this ugly, obviously rotten dream that you were owning part of a future media property. Yeah, the yeah, board. yeah. <laughs> like you, you were going to be part of Disney or Marvel. The Bored Apes, when you bought a Bored Ape, you allegedly got the right to distribute it and build a show or merchandise. And in fact, Seth Green bought an ape that he tried to build a TV show around. Classic 2022 idea. 
building a TV show around God. an NFT. Did oh, you guys, we, did you guys see the ad for that it. show, by the way? We, we watched Wait, the I, first few episodes. No, no, no. That was a different NFT show. That, was, yeah. that was a different board ape show. Okay. I can clarify here. There was a there was a show called The Red Ape Family that was about an adjacent property that included uh-huh. red apes, but other NFTs. But then Seth Green was also trying to make uh, a a show that was like almost like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where it's a mix of like cartoons oh, and no. like real background sets. Oh um, no! But it's just like about Seth Green, who is a monkey, uh, as a bartender. <laughs> like it looked like dog shit. Oh, but what's really funny is someone scammed him out of that ape, yeah. so he had <laughs> yes. to pause. Yes. He had to pause production on his show. This is the future of entertainment, folks. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't have the intellectual property rights anymore. And then he ended up having to pay a hundred grand to get it back. And the show never, I, I cannot find the show anywhere. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing. Putting that aside, people genuinely thought they were buying like Amazing Fantasy 15, First Appearance of Spider-Man, stuff like that. They thought that they were buying something that would give them access, but also some degree of ownership over a future IP. And frankly, I can understand how they were scammed because you had people like Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit, who through his VC firm 776 sunk $54 million into an NFT project called Doodles, claiming in January of this year, 2023, that Doodles- This year. This year, in fact. Now, to be clear, the funding was last year, 2022. Okay, okay. But he claimed this year- and to be clear, Doodles is a collection of NFTs and an associated cartoon that kind of looks like Adventure Time, but significantly worse. Yeah, that but makes sense. Alexis said that Doodles wanted to build the next generation of Disney and a whole world of IP that is giving people a stake <laughs> and a sense of ownership. Sure, so, sure, buddy. Yeah, I, exactly. Thank you, Alexis. I one hundred. How how does being rich feel? So to be clear, what Doodles was is still was a collection of 10,000 NFTs of doodles procedurally generated like most of these. And it's worth taking a step back here. Why are so many of these projects 10,000 images? It's because there's absolutely no creativity. Not even a little. They just, it's... Is there like a, is there like a false scarcity aspect, which is trying to like inflate value? Is that like Absolutely. another reason for why they would have like these limited batches? Because I, I know the original Bored Ape ones were like around around 10,000 as well, at least initially. Yes, there's always like a couple thousand, 10,000. But when you take a step back and really think about it, that's actually a huge amount. It isn't yeah. a scarce good. It yeah. isn't. It may be to the people who are pumping and dumping them, but 10,000 isn't creativity. There's what, like maybe 30 different Spider-Men, but that's not 10,000 of them. And none of these have a name. None of these have a character. I will get to the two characters in Doodles because there are just two. The more that you talk about this and just kind of based on my paying attention to it, I kind of feel like part of what we're seeing is like the intersection of two cultural myths, right? One of them is like the myth about how... I mean, it's not entirely myth, largely accurate about what happened with Apple when it went public, right? And you have all of these hundreds of like nerds who had just been like working class kids who become worth hundreds of millions of dollars overnight, right? Which has become mm-hmm. part of kind of like our our cultural memory of like how tech is supposed to work ever since. And then the other is like 
Star Wars, right? And the way in which George Lucas revolutionized uh, capitalizing on every silly idea you've ever had. Like a mm-hmm. lot of NFT, a lot of the NFT hype is based on the belief that like you could be, you could, you could buy into the next like Glurf Strebo or whatever fucking weirdo <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. George Lucas character and it could get a movie, you know, because yeah. this is all infinitely capitalizable. Yeah, the the kind of buckshitos of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're actually right as well, because I don't know if you remember when episode one, Star Wars episode one came out, mm-hmm. they deliberately made the box to look like the old Return of the Jedi figures, which were now worth thousands or A lot hundreds. of money. A lot of money. Yeah. But there is that full scarcity aspect, and it is it is like that, except even worse, because there's less value to it. Because when you buy a doodle as you will, putting thousands of dollars into something called a doodle, one might wonder, what exactly is the value of this? Because doodles do not actually convey any intellectual property. Bored apes kind of do. The legality is muddy. You can merchandise your doodle for up to $100,000 of physical goods. So t-shirts, you know, why you would buy a a doodle t-shirt, I'm not really sure, but you could sell it. Just the theoreticals here are amazing. But Doodles, really at its core, was sold on the idea that it allowed you to steer the company, to vote on the future of Doodles, which is kind of similar to Bored Ape Yacht Club. You could get ape coin if you had NFTs of the apes or the mutant apes, and you could then vote in these votes about the future of the Board Ape Yacht Club, but not Yuga Labs, who owns the Board Ape Yacht Club. So really, you were just controlling a vague sense of nothing. In the case of Doodles, you could vote on what they may do in the future. It was never really obvious. Was Doodles a DAO? Doodles is a DAO. Okay, okay. And the funny thing to remember about almost all of these as well is, not in the case of Doodles, but in the case of like the Board Ape Yacht Club and the Ape Chain, I hate this crap. Andreessen Horowitz (laughs) owns 14% of all ApeCoin, of their initial drop. They own multiple crypto products, large chunks of these total tokens, and so they can control these votes if they need to. But what's also important to know is none of this stuff involves the actual goddamn company. Nobody owns a thing. These decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, are always framed as this kind of democratic process, carefully leaving out the fact that a democratic system with transactable votes is by definition a goddamn kleptocracy. But on top of that, you don't own anything. You don't have anything with these companies. You don't get stock. You don't get anything. You just have one of 10,000 images that may in 10 years not actually go anywhere. It's, It's farcical. The only thing dumber than that, however, is the fact that Doodles is no longer an NFT project and will no longer cater to speculators. According to a statement <laughs> oh, from wow. March by the co-founder Jordan Poopy Castro. Poopy is... Okay. Wow. See, this is where I'm putting... You know what, Garrison? I'm putting the whole company pension plan uh, behind this guy. Poopy's, Poopy's got to be the one who makes those calls from now on. You gotta, it's, it's really got to suck as well if you were like a speculative investor in Doodles already mm-hmm. and you find out that your whole thing is wor- like going to be worth less because of a guy called Poopy. I think that that's, that's just very special to me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah I, continue. Yeah. I'll continue. So just to be clear, less than a year before this, according to their investor, 
This company was positioned to continue to define the NFT industry and onboard millions to the blockchain and become one of the most inclusive, creative, joyful media brands in Web3 and beyond. This is the same company that had now officially rug-pulled their entire customer base. And by the way, if you'd have invested at the time that the $54 million funding round, so towards the end of 2022, you would have lost money. You would not have gained money. There was no liquidity event that had given would give you anything. Also important to recognize with, so other than Alexis Ohanian, the other investor in Doodles was FTX Ventures. So in March of 2023, you kind of sat down with your morning coffee and you read the announcement from Jordan Poopy Castro and found out that your FTX-backed NFT project had lost about 85% of its value and now the company was not backing you in any fucking way. Yeah, but I mean, you, FTX is putting out Super Bowl ads. They seem stable. They seem like a... Yeah, yeah. They'll be fine. <laughs> they'll be, what could happen? They'll be fine. <laughs> but what what's great about this is... It is probably one of the largest rug pulls I've ever seen, and nobody is in trouble. Nobody's mad at Alexis Ohanian. Doodles sold people on a dream. A stupid dream, but a dream nonetheless. Yes, yes. Very, very goddamn stupid one, that you'd be investing and participating in the future of intellectual property and have some industry over its future. You would theoretically, though obviously when you read this now it sounds dumb, and also when you read it at the time, it's... You were meant to be buying into the next Disney, the next Marvel. Yeah, this was th- what was sold. That that is another huge aspect. Is they, there's like I think a lot of people who are like you, you know grew up with like pop culture and want to take part in like the creation of like culture and media, but you know Hollywood systems feels so foreign and unattainable. So this thing comes up and it and this looks like a, like a democratized way that you can like get in on some like new version of what the entertainment like landscape will be and you're like, "Oh, this is this is like my chance. I can be one of 10,000 exactly. people to like contribute towards this next big, you know, cultural thing in 10, 20 years." But I mean, obviously that's like in retrospect, it's very clearly a scam for some people, like probably myself and many people listening. Initially, this sounded like a scam, but it it certainly was alluring for a, a, a good deal number of people. I mean, I'm, I'm this, this is kind of reminding me that there was this very similar kind of Dow big big failure around uh, Dune. They were wanting to put out. Oh yeah, some- they wanted to buy. They wanted to buy the deck and the rights to Yodorovsky's Dune. Right. Yes. Yeah. And 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 put out media and put out like their own like animated series, uh, which is funny because initially they just they weren't even going to bother with like the intellectual property, which is really funny because you know a big part of of this this NFT stuff is like you own the IP of each NFT character, right? Um, and as they as this kind of project progressed, they slowly started to realize that what they've done was probably just commit massive fraud, and they completely collapsed. But, but, but like. This Dune like NFT DAO project was being was was being boosted by a lot of like very mainstream publications. It, it, it was it was extremely hyped up, which can led people to like assume this is like a legitimate like entertainment project that you could like participate in by buying this small little piece. Last year, very very clearly, kind of fell apart as was kind of pre predestined. And what's really sad about this is. We can laugh at these people. I'll get to this in a bit. And we, we can should. laugh at these people. We should. It's very funny. But at the same time, a lot of people got 
screwed here because they trusted in people like Alexis Ohanian, founder yeah. of Reddit, unscathed despite the horrifying things that Reddit has done. Alexis Ohanian, insanely rich, married to a tennis star. God bless him. Hope they're happy. But nevertheless, Alexis has managed to fairly easily escape all blame for the fact that he misled everyone with this and other things, but this in particular. Because the dream of doodles, God, that sucks to say out loud, by the way. Yeah, it sure does. The dream of doodles (laughs) was that you were buying one of these 10,000 things and that you'd be part of a community and you'd be able to steer the doodles movement, the The doodles community. Jesus Christ. Uh I fuck. I know the Doodles Revolution. I think is more yeah. more accurate. Uh, and the Doodle Easters. No, that's not a term. No, no, no. I like that. I like that. The Let's Doodlers. Doodle Easters. Doodle Easters. Doodlers. They're all the doodos. Um, yeah. But you would be investing in the future of IP. You'd have part of this, and you'd be. You know what? Put aside the money. Put aside all the cash because they're not doing speculation anymore. It's not about that. Let's just focus on the community, which is dying. <clears throat> which is completely dead, I would argue. So fairly recently, Doodles had to remove the 50% quorum, which would require 50% of NFT holders to interact with the project to push a vote through. They had to remove that. They didn't say why. They had to remove it. I'm going to guess because nobody gives a shit. (laughs) Because nobody cares. Nobody gives a a, a rat fuck about any of this. And then voted to appoint a founding community council to make decisions about where the Doodle Bank, oh my God, Jesus Christ, oh, would be hell. would be spent in the future. So the Doodle Bank was where some of the revenues went from the secondary sales of these NFTs because the companies always take a cut because rent seeking, baby. Anyway, so if you were interested in the community aspect of Doodles, you're kind of shit out of luck because they've now entirely deleted their visions and guidelines document, which is the part of the website that tells you how any of the community shit works. And they nothing is happening right now with them. There's nothing going on. This is the ninth most popular NFT project, and they have attempted to and indeed succeeded in removing their association with NFTs. Now, one would think, okay, maybe they have a Discord. Of course, I did find it. 85,000 members. Oh, wow. Except it felt more empty than my Discord, which has 600 people in it. 85,760 members as of when I opened it last. And the newsstand section did not have a post in it since August 30th, which was announcing that the Doodles... Crocs collaboration had sold out. Terrible news to the least fuckable people alive. Uh. And their other official channels really hadn't been updated since May or August. The General Hall channel, which is where everyone was talking, was mostly just bots and people saying the words dudes rule, that's D-O-O-D-S, rule. (laughs) No real communication. It felt like several chat bots, kind of what, you know how you see Oblivion or Skyrim NPCs walk up to each other? other going, yeah. kind, greet- kind greetings to you. Imagine that with NFTs. 85,000 bloody people. I even tried to, I'm not going to say antagonize them, but I did ask them, are you happy with your investment? No responses. I was like, how do you feel about no response? Someone responded with dude's rule once. And it's insane because you won't believe this. The valuation of this company and their $54 million funding round was $700 million goddamn dollars. And it, their chat room has the charm and vibrance of a dying mall. 
This is meant to be the next generation of Disney, and yet it has no fans. There are people who will shoot you to death for insulting Spider-Man. There are people who will scream at you for not liking the latest Star Wars thing. These are super fans. Yeah. There are people yeah. who will do that with obscure video games you've never heard of. But for Doodles, this nearly billion dollar enterprise, the future of Disney, not one of these people cared anything about this. All it was, there's like, there are no super fans, no loyalists, no evangelists, nobody excited, no one even expressing an emotion, just a bunch of freaks who got con saying GM every two minutes or hours. Actually, what, how, it was so strange because I've been in chat rooms since I was like 11. I've seen varying levels of chat rooms in various games. Even the smallest community was kind of hopping at some point. This yeah. thing had no life. It was it's so just, strange. It's just like a digital ghost town. And the reality is what I said earlier. There's 10,000 of these goddamn things. These featureless, procedurally generated things. There's nothing to them. These NFT companies, these ones that allegedly want to replace Disney, they're incapable or unwilling to do anything approximating world building or law development. L-O-R-E. Doodles, which is worth 700 million goddamn dollars, which got 54 million dollars, has three characters that I can find. There's Hap, there's Cat Mellow, and there was another one which I could not find a name for. There is maybe 10 minutes of footage in the years that this thing was meant to exist. It's just so bizarre. It's so utterly craven and half-assed. It's people attack Disney and Marvel through Disney, obviously, and Star Wars. That, oh, they're just, oh, they're pushing this crap out. They're just churning this shit out and saying people will buy anything. In comparison, Disney are steadfast auteurs. They are creative agents, like likened to Salvador Dali. They are the, compared to the NFT people, they're gods. Because even Disney's least likable properties get more attention and have bigger fans than this. There are Disney adults who would like crying and falling on their knees when the lockdowns ended. Oh, yeah. None of these people would care. None of these people, if Jordan Poopy Castro died tomorrow, nobody would shed a tear or even remember, apparently. And it's just... I think the way to look at this, and especially Doodles, is that there is just within the NFT world and actually within the tech industry writ large, just this deep deep-seated loathing for creativity, storytelling, and the customer. Pendleton Ward, who made the original Adventure Time, don't know if you remember, which is very clearly where Doodles is ripped off from. Just compare them. They look very similar. He made it over a decade ago. It's a five-minute long video. He made it on his own without funding, without anything. And it's beautiful, and it's weird, and it's great. And you're like, wow, I'm so glad this guy did this. Doodles, which has tens of millions of dollars sitting around, has put out seven goddamn minutes of teasers and, and advertisements for brand collaborations. That's it. That's all. Something about Pharrell, something about Crocs, something about allegedly Doodles having a cartoon. I don't goddamn know. But my theory is that none of this was ever about creating anything. This was an attempt, to go back to what you were saying earlier, to recreate that sense that I just bought the Star Wars toy that will be worth $3,000 in 10 years. That's all this was. It well, was I'm, an, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're well on their way because I'm, I'm looking at the Doodle site right now. You can buy a 
a rug featuring my favorite Doodles character, Hap, for $100. So... Are you serious that these motherfuckers are selling a rug? Yes! Yes! The Crocs are sold out, unfortunately. I know know you were really wanting to get those. They're sold out. They were $120. They're selling selling little vinyl toys for $185. They have a cat mush... uh, they have a cat plush for 40 bucks. They have a puzzle for $22 and they finally have the before mentioned rug. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. It seems like a good investment. These things are selling out fast. You want you gotta, you gotta get in. Your character could be the next one. Yeah. But I think that the ultimate thing is none of this was about creating anything. That really is it. It was creating just enough to sell securities to suckers. And now all of it is falling apart. The SEC just sued a group of celebrities for an NFT cat cartoon called Stoner Cats. Yeah. No, I was really excited about Stoner Cats. I was really pumped up for seeing Mm -hmm. Stoner Cats. But sadly, the SEC charged the creator for unregistered offering of NFTs, which are securities, and they raised $8 million. It's just very sad, very funny, by the way, that the SEC now has to get in, like Gary Gensler has to look at stoner cats and say, all right, let's let's take a look at this. Oh, that's not good. The Howie Howie test is going to have fun with this. But I think NFTs were and are probably one of the more nihilistic parts of the tech industry. Yeah. Because they did the bare minimum to convince people. They made up all... It's kind of like that episode of The Simpsons where they remake Flanders' house and it's just a fascia and it effectively falls <laughs> With down a after being load-bearing poster, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's just enough to make people believe this could be worth enough. Because it's never really obvious what actually makes something worth something in the collectibles market, there are established artists who might, I personally own a bunch of original comic artwork, a lot of it by Arthur Adams. And that market is fairly small because there's only so much one man can do. And the value comes from what people are willing to pay. But in that case, it's beautiful pencils and inks and it's gorgeous. And you want that on your wall. In this case, it's I'm buying something that sounds like it might be valuable. There's not really a fundamental community. That sounds fine. But when you push past even the first layer It all falls apart. And that's because, in my opinion, the NFT hype was just a long con on customers in the media. It's a scam. A scam where companies built the appearance of value without ever actually generating anything. There's nothing to, oh, some vinyl figures. Who cares? Nobody's done, the Bored Ape Yacht Club has the world's shittiest cartoon. They did a Flash game called Dookie Dash. Yes, I did. I did see Dookie Dash. I, it, what was great was game game uh, of the year 2022 game of the year 2022 <laughs> immediately by the way scammed just immediately someone broke it and they had to like they were like what how did this happen but that's the thing yuga labs worth a couple billion dollars doodles worth 700 million nothing to them not a single interesting idea in any of them but they existed to con people into believing this completely thin view and it and also the nihilistic part is he was talking about people collecting art and collecting creative things but without actually ever seeing the value in the object 
The object's creativity was only as valuable as it was sellable, but not even sellable to an enterprise. It was just like to another person who could continue the chain of shit. I think there is a large untapped market for this, though, that Doodles is actually trying to exploit because I just found probably one of the most upsetting things I've discovered today, which is saying something because I've seen a lot of a lot of bad stuff today. (laughs) Today's Um, a war crime footage day. A lot of war crime footage is, but there is a Doodles immersive experience in Chicago for children. Oh, no. Where children create their own doodles, and you can pay $28 per person to spend an hour in this Doodles-themed art installation in Chicago. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the availability. There is... Yeah, let's tw- see if we can book one for the team. There is 10 slots open each day. All of the slots are open tomorrow, so... Wow. I think we should get a flight like wow. tonight. Yeah. Right yeah, now. We, 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 we got to book this ASAP. Yeah, that's going to sell out. I'm going to send you this link because it is the most, one of the more disturbing things I've, I've, I've found. I don't want to go to the doodles camp. Every, it's 20, 20, $28 per kid for one hour of walking in this one doodles themed room. Where first your kid creates a Doodles character so you can enter Doodle World. You go through a rainbow portal. You slide down rainbows, play in puffy clouds, and crash a spaceship. And then you romp through a whimsical <laughs> world until your hour is up. And then you leave oh, after man. spending $28 per child. It's like if a committee designed fucking uh, uh, Meow Wolf, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, like a it's, committee it's, of people on Thorazine. But if you watch this video as well of this Doodles world, here's the thing you don't see anything of anything. There's nothing. It's rainbow. There's a picture of the guy who I've already forgotten the name of. Hop. I can't believe you forgot Hop's name. I can't believe I forgot Hop. Hop is $185 to to get a figure. You have to remember. Uh God damn it. But that's, that's the thing. This is just... It's a uh, masterpiece of emptiness. It is a meaningless thing. There is nothing to doodles. If oh, you no. Know, no, it's, it's, it's vapid. There's nothing to any of it. And NFT investors were sold this dream of kind of an access to wealth they, for both sides. Like, oh, the artist will make money because every NFT sale, you get some royalties, some rigid residuals, which theoretically is a cool thing. That when an artist has a piece sold yeah, on yeah, someone yeah. else, they get a. I like that idea. I always have. And in turn, by buying into this quote unquote art, you can generate your own wealth. And you can be part of this positive chain where everyone wins, but you're also early, so you get to feel smart. Except the problem is that you're more than likely left with a worthless piece of shit. You're left with nothing. So fundamentally, there will be, and I don't believe more than a couple thousand people made any money on NFTs. The majority of the people who bought NFTs are going to be left in the red, and every new entrant is just another sucker to hopefully dump an investment onto because there are no NFTs that have a fundamental value. There's not one. It's not like, Dis- notice that Disney, Marvel, none of these major things, notice that none of them got involved. They didn't want to fucking touch us. DC did a, a vague idea of buying comic covers, but even then it was half-assed because why? Why would you do it? 
I've been saying this since 2021, that these things had no value, that it was just an attempt to sell people this vague yeah. sense of participation in a new economy. And in fact, there was a study that came out, an analysis of 73,257 NFT collections. 95% of NFTs on the market are now totally worthless. The value of these collections is zero Ethereum. Almost every single person encouraged to invest in them by the New York Times, by CNBC, is a victim of a massive legal fraud peddled by internet charlatans like Alexis Ohanian. I'm not saying he's one of them, but there are people within the NFT industry who also wash trade these things, which means that they effectively sell them to themselves. And there's a there's actually increasingly impressive research that suggests that most NFT sales were just wash trading, just people pumping and pumping and pumping. That's why Justin Bieber's ape that he bought for $1.3 million is worth about 60 grand now. He'll be fine, but other people won't. And that's what's really anger-inducing. That's what fills my veins full of poison. NFTs were never worth anything, and the majority of the industry is made up of fake goddamn transactions. And the people who will suffer are the majority. And the majority are not rich. The majority are not yeah, anything other than desperate people who were manipulated. It's like with fucking the FTX collapse, which is funny in a lot of ways, but also one of the big bag holders wound up being like a teacher's pension fund. Right. Uh, like that was massive. But And obviously, I think that like in addition to going after Sam, people, regulators should be looking at who the fuck made the call to put people's pension money in fucking brain genius kids gambling den. But uh, it is... Like there, there is like real harm to it, and that was like always the plan. Everyone who was involved in pushing this is was was trying to like the 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 whole game plan was to create this critical mass of hype that right. broke people's ability to actually analyze what what they were doing. That just kind of made them panic and throw money in because they felt like otherwise they were going to miss out on their chance to retire. Right. That was the yes. whole thing. And that's why, like, the entire social media hype around this was all based on you're going to stay poor forever if you don't get in on this right now. Like, it's it's so disgusting and, yeah, just evil, evil people. And they were never a great investment. They were never the future of IP. They're just a vehicle to extract capital from retail investors, from regular people who, to your point earlier, who didn't invest in Apple earlier or Google early. They didn't get the chance. They didn't buy the Star Wars toy. So this was their chance to get ahead. And if these are just a, an exploitative scam, they create just enough. It's a true scam as well. They create just enough to get people in the door and just enough to make that investment defensible. They And it honestly shared a lot of the language of the Joel Olsteins and conspiracy theorists and te other televangelists telling people, to your point, oh, you're not going to make it. Oh, have fun staying poor. What a noxious fucking thing to say. What a disgusting yeah. thing to say to someone. And what's funny is they use the other scam that some companies in the tech industry used, FTX, for example, where they would raise rounds of venture capital which gave the appearance of a real enterprise where things were actually happening. And then they sold them this dream of, oh, you could own a piece of this, despite the fact that not a single goddamn NFT actually granted stock options, voting rights, or anything else, because if they did that, it would immediately become a security. So they'd never do that. You don't have 
consequential votes. You don't have any industry over this industry. You just have a thing that can be, it may not be fungible, but the operating environment for it is absolutely fucking fungible. If Doodles was truly non-fungible, they wouldn't be able to change the Doodles quorum. They would just have to sit there and do nothing. But what's also important to realize, and as I've said before, but I'll say it a goddamn again, is they really didn't try very hard. The Bored Ape Yacht Club, which is the biggest one, the 10,000 horrifying looking apes, owned by a company called Yuga Labs, they were valued at $4 billion in 2022. Despite the fact that they said they were going to go Hollywood, they've not actually created anything. They did a, they said they were going to do a metaverse product. They sold <laughs> NFTs of this metaverse thing that they've never shown called other side i believe yeah it crashed <laughs> ethereum but and they had that video game where you travel through a toilet looking for poop dookie, yeah. da- dookie dash <laughs> yeah that's dookie. this is the new disney everyone this is it this is the new disney it's the metaverse that will never get built it's the cartoon about monkeys and toilets that actually advertise dookie dash the rich deep lore of the board ape yacht club by the way is that a monkey did a poo so bad that a key came out to another dimension, but then the monkey somehow put that key in a beer that the monkey drank, and then the monkey did another poo where it put it into the sewer pipes, thus making it necessary for you to pilot another monkey to go and get the key. Very fucking stupid. Uh Very bad. Ugly. Like, the designs suck. That's the other thing. These aren't even good looking. And this is a company worth $4 billion. $4 billion. And all they've done is not make a metaverse, but make a lot of money, make a terrible series looking of cartoons that may or may not go anywhere, and an Ebums World clone that got scammed almost immediately. Someone found a way to exploit it immediately because it's a Flash game. These are not creative enterprises. These are not entertainment companies. They're shell corporations for ill-gotten revenues. For secondary market sales of 10,000 bullshit pictures that were hyped up by the media who could not analyze it properly. They just saw the large amounts of money that were being made. The crooked ways, by the way, the ones which were clearly pumped, everyone covered them. World of Woman, do you remember that one? World of Woman, the NFT? That was my favorite one because there were so many guys in the crypto world who were like, yeah, I bought a World of Woman NFT. I support woman. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, I love it. No, it's so good. And it's because all of it's exploitative. NFTs are vehicles to exploit people, particularly Americans, who are desperate and fairly questioning their place in the world that is continually turned upon providing basic social services and the ability for its citizens to thrive. There are a few honest ways for the average person to accumulate wealth anymore. It's nearly impossible to buy a house. Returns on the market suck. The market's already confusing. And yeah, all of that's quickly outpaced by the fact that you have student loans, health insurance, and inflation is making things more expensive than ever. And I would argue that that is really the root of what's so evil about crypto. Yeah. It's inherently exploitative. It is inherently linked in all of these ways to religious dogma, that you're buying into something, that you're finally part of something meaningful, something that will grow, something that will make you whole in a way that your predecessors might have been just through living normally. This industry, it took root because most people can't thrive. Everyone has to hustle. 
everyone has to struggle. You can't do the things that people even 20 years ago could do. You can't work a normal job and buy a house anymore. You can't get a mortgage in many cases. You can't just go to college and probably pay those loans off in five years. God, no. That shit's going to follow you decades. And nobody's helping you. And then along comes these, along comes this very technological, cool-sounding, non-fungible token. This thing where, oh, I could be part of this new art market. I can be the smart one for once. I can be ahead of everyone. And the people on the other side of that transaction are telling you everything you want to hear. They're the next Disney. They're the next Marvel. You're going to be part of something. You're going to make it. That's what you'll do if you buy into this. All of those crypto people are totally fine. All of them. The Winklevosses, like Sohanian, Mark Andreessen, uh, Chris Dixon. They're all doing great. They're multi-millionaires several times over. The people on the other side are victims. Victims of what I would argue any just society would decide was a financial crime. And I think that every single venture capitalist who put money into these products and who pumped them should be held accountable. They won't because that is the modern tech industry because that is the modern government. There is no justice for the victims of NFTs. And it's really horrifying to watch. Yeah. yeah, I know sometimes it can be hard to be sympathetic for these folks because we imagine them being like, you know, Fedora, Reddit, you know, characters. But I think if if you have the capacity to feel sympathetic to like former cult members, this is kind of the same thing. Yeah, this is exactly. like this is it's 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 really the same process and a big part of actually beating cults is the ability to be sympathetic to former cult members. That is actually like yeah. a, a crucial yeah. part of, of getting people to like get past this sort of thing. Yeah, inclu- um, and that's that's going to include not just the innocent, but some people who did some pretty ugly things. Um, and yeah, I think that's and that's what hard but I, critical. Yeah, and I always try and push people to think of that because it is very easy to your point to look at the fedoras, to look at the wag me guys, the we're going to make it yeah. people, and say these are the majority. I would argue most people, and I say this haven't been in too many telegrams of too many rug pulled projects, just watching. The vast majority of people are desperate. Yeah. They just want their investment to turn. They just want something. Because there really isn't much way out for most people. There really isn't. Yeah. Most people get lucky. And that's how they live what used to be it, what used to be just like the general purpose yeah. good life. 2.4 children, house white picket fence, just doesn't happen for anyone anymore. And you're left with this in a society where that happens, where there's so, there are so few opportunities to thrive for people. You get things like this. You get these massive cons. And I think that it will be hard for this to take root again. I don't think crypto's done screwing people. I think no. that they they will find trying. a way to pump this in the future. Yeah. Which is why you should buy our new cool zone coin, you know, for for just the price of $45 a coin, you can ape in. And and we we're recommending right now um just kind of transferring your whole 401k over into cool zone coins, which which you can do by just sending it to our mailing address in the form of a check. We'll we'll get your coins to you, don't worry. 
No problem. I will personally take care of it. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, thank you so much for putting this together. I think it's important to kind of look at this sort of stuff in retrospect, especially as the next con builds up scheme. You know, interest rates will drop eventually, and and then there will be another attempt to fleece large numbers of people, possibly using Larry David. <coughs> Although he may have learned his lesson this time. Um, Ed, do you want to give the people some uh, some notes on where they can find you if they want to uh, read your stuff? You can find me at where's your ed dot at. That's my newsletter. Where's your ed app? And you can find me on on Twitter or X the Everything app or rate my news dot business. <laughs> It'll be called soon uh, mm-hmm. at Ed Zitron. I'm also on Blue Sky. Uh, you can find me at Zitron Z I T R O N. Well, check Ed out any of those places and check us out here. You already found us once, so presumably you will not forget how to find us the second time. Until next time, um, you know, don't invest money in unregistered securities. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.